Welcome to the Modern Woodworkers Association, a podcast about woodworking from folk who woodwork. Woodworking is what we do, who we are, and what we like to talk about. So join us as we have a drink, sit around, and talk woodworking. Hi, and welcome to the 218th episode of the Modern Woodworkers Association podcast. I'm Kyle Barton of Windsor Wonderland, and I'm here with my co-host, Diami Plotke of the Penultimate Woodshop and Sean Wisniewski of the Corner Workshop. We're talking tonight to Zach Higgins and Casey Martin of the ResinCast podcast. So, Diami, what are you working on these days? Um, well, since the fence is not done and I have to share a house and a bed with my wife, I got back to work on the entertainment center this past weekend. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, yeah, so uh, it's the four giant slabs. Um, I'm sure all the listeners know this by heart, but they're an inch and a half thick, 20 inches wide, 12 foot long. Um, one of them was actually only 16 inches wide. But they were the last last we spoke of them, I had buttered them all with uh, with a thickened blue dyed epoxy to fill in all the voids in the timber strand. And mm-hmm. Where they're rounded over, because all the edges are rounded over. Where they're rounded over, I went with a very thick application of the timber of the epoxy, rather. Um, because what I find is when I kind of scrape it smooth to the surface, by the time the epoxy dries, sometimes it's still just a little shallow, and it doesn't make a perfectly flat surface by the time I sand it. So right. I didn't want to have to butter up these rounded over edges multiple times, so I went really heavy on the epoxy. So now... I have a thin layer of epoxy on the surface of these slabs and big, like, sharp globs of epoxy on the roundovers. Um, I had previously figured out how to get the epoxy off the surface, which was with a 24-grit belt sander. And you can't really use a 4-inch wide 24-grit belt sander on curves. Mm -hmm. So Mm. I have the... The Festool Linear Sander. I was just going to bring that up. Yeah, you got that one where you can mold different shapes into the bottom of it? it, and the, it well, yes, yeah. you can. I, yeah. I just have the factory like half-round mold, which through pure dumb luck is basically the, the perfect size for these roundovers. Um, and it just it only goes back and forth. It's a, it's a linear sander. It doesn't do an orbit. So it's really good at these like lengthwise shapes. The problem, though, is it's even with... I think I have 40 grit papers, the coarsest paper I have for it. It was not quite aggressive enough. Like, it would it would knock all the sharp edges off, which was nice. Um, but then it just took forever to get the epoxy off down to what's essentially bare wood. So then I resorted back to my um, my Rotex, my RO150, which is the, the big monster Rotex. And I used an interface pad, and I only had 60 grit paper in that size was the courses I had. But with the, with the interface pad and the 60 grit in Rotex mode, it did a fine job of, of getting it off. Um, but the problem I ran into is, A, I destroyed the interface pad. I don't know if you guys have ever used the interface pads, but they're the, mm-hmm. the foam pads that Festool makes. And right. it, it lets you do curves without flattening them, or it re- greatly reduces the flattening you do when you're, when you're doing a curve. Mm-hmm. And they do wear when you're taking paper on and off them. The foam, the Velcro tends to separate from the foam core of the pad. But 
I just destroyed a pad on Saturday. I've never, <laughs> I've never destroyed it the way I did on Saturday. Um, and some of that might be because the the platen, the actual disc on the RO150, kept coming off. Now they're they're interchangeable because they have hard and soft platens. Um, but I would basically touch the sander to the wood and it would fly away and i'm doing this in my driveway so at one point it flew into my front yard and it took me about 15 minutes to find where it went it flew so far away um, and you're cussing the entire time I, I am and i'm i'm what i'm doing is i'm thinking of how expensive this stupid sander is and that i can't keep a platen on it um yeah. so i when it was in random orbit mode the platen would not stay on period when oh. it was in rotex mode the platen stayed on for the most part, but if I knocked it the wrong way, it would just instantly fly off. And mm. I've never experienced this with this sander, and I would have assumed they just kind of twist on, but I would have assumed they twist on opposite the direction of the spinning, so the spinning just keeps mm. them tighter. Right. Um, but that, I, I honestly, I don't know why. And I was at the, I went to a, a local Festool dealer today, because I had to buy, I bought two more interface pads, <laughs> um, and I bought 40 grit paper. So, I was talking to them about it, and they've never heard of the platens coming off. So that was incredibly helpful. Um, yeah, I wonder if you just got to run with where some defect in, in whatever binds them together. Is it just like plastic tabs that go up and then twist? It's, it's a steel piece in the sander, and the plastic, it's basically the, threads. and it's On the mm, platen. Okay. Yeah. So there's, mm. there's basically three teeth, and it, it gives a third of a turn, and they lock together. Hmm. I don't know. That's so, weird. Yeah, so I, I don't know. But in any event, I managed to get one of the slabs, the edge, completely sanded. And what I ended up doing is I used the linear sander to make the epoxy so it wasn't sharp. Then I took the Rotex and got all the epoxy off. Then I went back to the linear sander and kind of refined the shape. And any little facets I'd accidentally created, I, I got out with the linear sander that had a half-round shape in it. Um, and that that worked pretty well. So now that one slab is ready to be sanded. Like, it's... I've, I've gotten all the epoxy off, but it's in various stages of sanding, anywhere from 40 grit to 60 grit. So I really just needed to run it through normal finish sanding at this point. And then I have three more slabs that I still have to get the epoxy off of. But now that I have a system, I'm thinking I could do all three of them in, in a day. Um, and hopefully I have this... I have the more aggressive paper. I have two of the interface pads. I should have everything I need... So if we have a good dry day over the weekend, maybe I'll try to get them all done. Um, but then the other thing that's coming up this weekend as we record is the Long Island Woodworkers Show is this Saturday and Sunday. So I'm going to try to sneak off to that. So if I do that, maybe I will do this. So I don't know. And I still have a fence to do. But that's where things stand in this shop. Hmm. Okay. Well, for me, um, not much is going on. I finished up the stools, um, the prototype stools, and my quote-unquote client, um, I think I'm going to meet him next weekend, and he's going to take a look, decide what he likes. But um, um, besides that, I finished those, and I really haven't done much. Uh, it's, I've been working, I mean, I work incredibly slow, but <laughs> I've been in the shop pretty much every weekend for about the last, oh boy, it seems like six months or so. Yeah, you've been, uh, you really rocked through those prototypes. You say you work slow. Yeah. I thought you were working very fast on them. Yeah. Um, so, um, so I just kind of take a break, you know, I kind of clean the shop up and just said, oh, I'm going to take a couple of weeks off. So, um, right now, of course, I think I've talked about, I want to build a, a P Galbert's rocker that I have the plans for. I need to start, uh, 
getting ready for that. But before I do that, I'm probably going to make some Christmas presents. It's been a couple of years since I've made uh, Christmas presents for family and friends. So I think I'm going to do that. I'm trying to decide what I want to do. And um, I think I'm going to do, because I need to improve my lathe skills. Um, I think I'm going to do those, uh, the little round lidded boxes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm thinking about doing that. How um, many do you have to make? Probably about four or five. Oh, okay. That's not too yeah. bad. Especially yeah, during logic. Too... You could knock yeah, and plus I think it'll it'll uh, help improve my skills with the skew and whatnot. So, um, but uh, that's what I think I'm going to do now. You know, I could always just bail and uh, decide not to do anything like I did last year. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> you and me both, buddy. That's, that's been my... Uh, I don't know if y'all saw... Yeah, I thought about... Um, I don't know, a few months ago in Popular Woodworking Magazine, um, Chris Wartz had a little book stand that had like little copper copper rivets in it. I don't know if y'all saw that. They kind of folded up Mm -hmm. and fold it. And that looked pretty neat. I was thinking about doing that, but um, I think the little uh, lidded boxes would be better. I mean, the uh, the little book stand, that would be pretty cute. And, uh, you know, if I'm a total failure with making them loaded boxes, I think that's my, uh, my backup. <laughs> so Sean, what about you? Oh, you know, uh, in between seasons, cause, uh, water polo season stopped lacrosse indoor season is happening and swim season started. Um, I did actually take a day uh, last this last weekend to finally finish the siding on my son's room. So oh, while barely barely woodworking, it it's almost done. I still need to paint the corner because I have I have wood corners. I got to paint those so they don't rot and um, uh, caulk and everything. But I got the final wall done. No, it there was the most well. Besides, there's no there's no windows on that one, but there was a stairway to go up, so it was a little more complicated to get around it. But okay. got that done finally. And just just stupid vinyl siding, so it's it's actually fairly simple. It was just an afternoon's worth of work that I needed to finish it up. Mm. But thankfully, it's done though. Cool. Mm-hmm. So Zach, what's going on in your shop? Oh man, I have been busy lately. Uh, pretty much since I got back from the the SWAT wood turning symposium, I have been just trying to get on top of orders. The fall season comes and. People need pen blanks because they're making pens and stuff for Christmas presents. And so I've <laughs> been trying to kind of keep up on my my regular stock, like the pen blank stuff. But I've also started adding, uh, I never really used to make larger blanks. And I bought a ton of burl and I'm doing a bunch of hybrid larger you know, size blanks, like sphere blanks, lidded boxes, that kind of stuff. So I've just been trying to knock them out, uh, get, get things. <laughs> I'm, I'm still a little bit behind, but... Just kind of keep making things, and so just lots of resin casting. Pretty much, that's what that's what I do day in and day out, <laughs> making blanks. Well, maybe I need to check that out because I need some blanks. Nice, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Fill more orders in. That's, that's right. That's what he wants. <laughs> I need more orders. Yeah. I, I think I better make a couple of lidded boxes before I start getting too fancy with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I never made fun before. Right? Yeah. It's fun turning the hybrids. I like, I like, I, I'm a big, it, it's funny because when I was, you know, really just a, a woodworker, mm-hmm. it had to be 
everything had to be wooden. I mean, I didn't even like brad nails, you know? Yeah. And and then I kind of got into this this resin stuff. And now I'm kind of like, man, I mean, that, you know, I love the grain and wood, but I'm like, you know, it needs a little color. <laughs> Put some <laughs> glitter in there. Make some bling in it. You know, like it just, I don't know. That's just what I, I kind of tend to lean towards at this point. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Yeah, yeah having fun. Do you? It's okay. You, right, I'm sorry, sorry. Jack, Zach. When you're doing the blanks for this time of year or at all, are you making basically just the stock blanks you want to make and listing them for sale, or do you do custom blanks? I don't really do custom work. It. I got to be honest. It's 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 uh, it's a lot of communication. You mm-hmm. know, like time spent trying to figure out what somebody wants. And then it's it's also kind of stressful. I, I just, I don't like it when, you know, when I have work to do, I'd rather just make it and then say, do you like it? Buy it kind of thing, you know, like mm-hmm. put pictures up. And, and what I'm doing now is Instagram videos. So I'll just kind of show the blank off and you can see the entire thing and then just say, hey, this one's available now. Um, the the regular stock stuff that I make, though, the most of the pen blanks, I just keep those in stock. So I just have... Uh, you know, a lot of them are like team color blanks. And okay. So I just keep them stocked up and that's just kind of, you know, like, like a machine in a sense. And then these bigger and different blanks that I'm doing now are just one off. Um, I, I do some custom things, but I, like I said, the, the custom work that I do is for videos. You know, I'll do some kind of crazy project and then I'll do a video on it, but I'm generally not really going to be making more <laughs> of them, okay. you know? Um, so not, not a lot of custom work. Uh, typically if somebody unless it's unless it's like super easy the, the one of the problems that i have is if somebody has something very specific in their head it is impossible to get it perfect you know right. like exactly how they want it yeah they can tell me they can show me pictures of colors and all this other stuff but it it just i find that it's hard to really get exactly what somebody wants in their head uh, to be made. So I, I just find it easier to kind of, I, I enjoy it a lot more just getting kind of creative with it and then saying, you know, do you want this one here? This is what it is. (laughs) Does this fit what you want? Kind of thing makes things a lot easier. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So Casey, what's going on in your shop? So in my shop, I, I've been doing a lot of similar things to, to Zach in the regards that I make pen blanks primarily as well as kind of like a main inventory. But the main thing that's different with my pen blanks is I do a lot of hybrid pen blanks, primarily with grapevine. So I've been oh, making okay. a lot of those um, to kind of just keep them in stock. But also similar to Zach, I've been making a lot of um, kind of just... Uh, we call them blocks, which can kind of be turned into anything. They could be turned into, you know, an, an orb, a knife handle, cut into pen blanks still, other things like that. And uh, so I've been doing a lot of those. I also got a lot, a pretty large shipment of some maple burl in recently that I've been cutting up um, into s- smaller chunks to dry and then um, started c- cutting some of the ones that have already been dry into um smaller sizes so that I can stabilize them for knife scales. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of just a, a lot of processing and just a lot of, just a, a, a lot of kind of, uh, I, I don't know really what to call it, like re- recurring work. I'm kind of doing the same processes over and over, but um, I've been kind of throwing in some of those, those blocks that Zach was talking about where you kind of just 
make one for fun and you don't really have to focus on you know a specific style Mm -hmm. um just to kind of mix it up so yeah that's kind of what i've been up to lately and it's been a lot of fun now is, Mm. is most of your work making blocks and blanks for to sell to people or are you then turning those into finished turned goods to sell to people so the first, the first, I'm primarily making blocks or, or pen blanks for people to turn into other things. I originally started myself making pens. I started making them out of wine barrel staves. That was kind of my uh, niche. And then that led me to want to make pens and other things out of grapevine, which kind of led me down the, the road of learning about resin mm-hmm. and how to, how to do all that. Cool. So both of y'all mentioned barrels. So is that, uh, are y'all sourcing that local to y'all? No, I, I, no. I get it from various places, uh, okay. usually online. Um, there's, there's like wood, some of the lumber dealers sell it now. They're, okay. they're stocking it because it's, I, I have a feeling, I mean, I, I never really noticed it when I was just doing woodworking and I would be buying lumber from like, mm-hmm. you know, all the different sources for, for just lumber. But I have a feeling that with the kind of how, how it's been picking up with this hybrid and resin and, you know, resin mm-hmm. and wood kind of movement. Um, I have a feeling that they're kind of getting smart and just stocking it <laughs> now. Oh, so that's one place, some of the big kind of commercial things, but uh, it's just most of the time I, I know people kind of on Facebook that sell mm-hmm. and they're oh, just okay. kind of processing wood and stuff like that. So I just kind of, whenever I find somebody that's got something, you know, just kind of contact them, see what kind of deal I can get and then try and get lately. I've, uh, to be honest, I never really got into just hybrid blanks that much. I was doing kind of weird stuff too. I got into the whole blank making thing using sagebrush because <laughs> uh, that's a yeah. Nevada state flower. And so that's how I got into this whole thing. And I was doing that kind of thing in pine cones and I didn't really go into the hybrid thing at first. Mm-hmm. And I'm, so I'm kind of doing it backwards because a lot of people kind of get into it that way and then branch off into weird stuff. <laughs> I just mm-hmm. went straight for weird. And then now <laughs> I'm kind of like, you know, I think I'm going to start making some of these things. You know, it's really fun dye stabilizing stuff. I, I really like, you know, adding color to the wood through the stabilizing process, then adding resin to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so now I'm buying, you know, not not a ton of it, but I mean, pretty big you know, batches, <laughs> orders of it now. So whenever, wherever I can find it, basically. Okay. Uh, at a, at yeah, a reasonable I, price. Yeah, I just wondered because where y'all are located, but um, uh, because, yeah, my lumber dealer uh, stocks burl, but boy, is it expensive. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have yeah. that much around here. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. No, a, I wouldn't think so. pine stuff. Now, Oregon is pretty close, though. There's a lot mm-hmm. up in Oregon, and then Casey's over in California, so he's got yeah. a little bit more access. But uh, there's there's not that much lumber, like burl wood and stuff around you, is there, Casey? No, there's there's really not. I mean, I like similar to you, I get all of my stuff online, and I feel like the only time I see burl in a lumber yard, which is rarely, at least for me, it's still in like slab form, and yeah. I think. That that's not what Zach and I would ever really be using. We'd be using the smaller kind of burl cap part, mm-hmm. and those are a lot cheaper because the large majority of woodworkers don't use them. Right. So they're they're kind of like the scraps that we that we uh, go after. Okay, that makes sense. 
I was I was a little more interested in in the uh, wine barrel staves. Do, are you in wine country that those are just tossed on the side of the road or? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, so, somewhat. <laughs> so, um, like I could find a pallet here or there. You just happen upon a wine barrel. Yeah, so I'm I am from wine country, and I'm also currently going to school in in wine country. So I'm from Sonoma County, which is right by Napa County, mm-hmm. like Napa Valley area in Northern California. And now I'm going to school in San Luis Obispo County, which is where like Paso Robles, Atascadero, Aurora Grande, if you've ever heard of those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, so back home, my my parents actually design and build wineries. And so th- some of their clients that were just asking my dad if he ever wanted some wine barrels. And so he had like a ton in our basement, basically as decor. And uh, some of them had had some wine in them. But uh, when I first started turning pens, I figured, well, I could just see if this works. And basically, to answer your question, it's really easy to get them. Um, yeah. And that's yeah. that's kind of how I, I started with it. When you, that's really cool. When you turn a pen from a wine barrel stave, I absolutely appreciate the the story and the nostalgia and the attraction. But... Ultimately, can you, if you were to just pick up the pen, could you tell it was from a wine barrel stave? Does any of it visually transfer over, or is it ultimately just a turned piece of wood? No, you can absolutely tell. So, and and for one, for one, exactly, for that specific reason. So, whenever I would turn a pen or a, a bottle stopper or a corkscrew or whatever I was making, if I couldn't retain the red wine stain, because mm-hmm. that was something I forgot mm-hmm. to mention, is I'm only using red wine barrels. So they have a pretty significant stain in them. If I can't get the, a significant stain in the finished product, which I usually was able to every time, I wouldn't. it, it wouldn't be good for me. Because yeah. that's, you, you, like you're saying, if, if you turn that off, it's essentially just oak. And it looks pretty, pretty boring. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you kind of have the red... Uh, it also looks kind of cool because there's different color variations and it kind of um, messes with the wood a little bit. And anyway, mm, that's it, pretty neat. I can see that it was the the staining would would really add a uniqueness to what would otherwise be a very pedestrian looking pen. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, or a blank. I guess I mean, you could certainly turn an interesting pen out of a basic wood, but um, it, it adds to the wood. Hmm. Well, that makes sense. So, um, before we get on to our main topic, uh, let's take a little uh, detour on things that piqued our interest since our last episode. So, Diami, I think you have uh, something that you've been, uh, I guess, using and want to tell folks about. Yeah, uh, the, the, the nice folk over at Bora sent me some of their relatively new parallel clamps. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used them... I used them gluing up the second blank for a headphone rack because I didn't have enough pro- projects going to shop. <laughs> um, is it because the first one something happened to it? No, no, no. The first one, the first one is is yeah. I'm going to go off a tangent here, but the first one is mostly done. But what mm-hmm. I think I'm going to do, I was always going to make two. And honestly, Sean, mm-hmm. this is so old that it was just when it was just you and I, and I was going to send one to you and keep one for myself. Oh, but now neither of us are getting them. Um, <laughs> so I, I was always going to make two, but what I think I'm going to do now is make them and make them into one headphone rack. It's going to be like desk mounted, so I still have to make. I'm thinking like a table lamp, like a 
is going to lift up by about 12, 16 inches above the desk surface and then have two headphone racks on it so it can be placed on a desk. Okay. Mm-hmm. So the first one is sanded and shaped and all ready to go in terms of a wall mount design. It's everything but finish on it. The second one is still in very rough form. I have to do all the shaping to it still. It's only been bandsawed so far. Um, and then I have so, to design some sort of a, a pole or a vertical and upright that comes between them or above them. Or I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I want it to be curvy, but besides that, I don't know. Um, yeah. And then I need so, to kind of carve them into all flowing so it looks like it's kind of one piece. Okay. So please tell me it was like a 60-inch uh, parallel clamp you were using for this. <laughs> no, they were nice enough to send me 12s because that's the size I needed. Okay. <laughs> um, Darn it. Yeah. So um, – to, to get back to the Bora clamp, it's a good clamp. Uh, I don't. I have, I have the original Bessies. I have the Bessie Revos. I have Jurgensens. I have Jets, and I have the Bora. Um, I hate the Jurgensens because the wood handle is just too slippery. Um, the Jets are nice, a little clunky sometimes, but they're very nice. The Bessies mm-hmm. are fantastic. The Revos are, except the head slides around too much. Um, and the, uh, the Boras are kind of a mix between them all. They're not the smoothest clamp I own, but they adjusted easily enough. The handle is easy to grip and turn. Um, they're a very functional clamp and I, I should have the price point in front of me and I don't, I'm sorry, but I believe they're... I've got them up, a 12 inch is $37 on Amazon. Which is competitive with everybody else. That's not... Yeah, I think so. It's it's not super expensive. It's not super cheap. It's right there. Exactly. And at that price, I'm going to say that they're probably a good value. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't... Yeah. There's None of them are perfect is the the unfortunate thing. And I think they kind of hit the sweet spot in most of the situations and um, they're absolutely going to get their job done. So... um, I, I like them. Yeah, that's. I have the Jet parallel clamps, and they mm-hmm, serve me. Yeah, they serve me well for a number of years, but I got a few of them that are starting to slip. Really, even with that, yeah. that trigger and the locking mechanism. Really, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've we, had we, some of their F bodies starting mm-hmm. to slip, but not mm-hmm. the not the parallels. Yeah, the parallels. Like if I'm clamping something up, you know, you know, I'm you know, use a little trigger, move it up. And then, then I'll start tightening it up, and I'll start getting tight, and then all of a sudden it'll loosen up and mm. slip back. And I need to call them, and it's been on my to-do list for I don't know how many months, and just see you know if they have a solution for that or not. I found I can stop that slipping, but I actually have to have to bear down on on um, the handle. So as I'm twisting the handle, I also have to push it down. Okay. Yeah, so it's got a little yeah. a little cam action. A little thing tilts a little bit as yeah, it's so, down. Yeah, something's not and I just had like one or two of them that were doing it and now I have like three or four that are the, doing it. So oh, wow. yeah. the the, yeah. uh, the bar for the jet yeah. has little t- like teeth in it. Are mm-hmm. those teeth maybe filled with glue or or resin That's or what something? I was gonna no, ask. no, no, um yeah, I thought about that, but I'm pretty you know, I wax them, and then if I'm doing glue, where glue might get on the can, might get on the clamp, I also put you know some clear tape down. Oh, you're you're and, I... yeah, <laughs> and well, yeah, but then I thought, well, maybe it's the clear tape, maybe it's that adhesive in the tape or something. Could it be so the wax? you know, I, yeah, Could so be I, the wax. Yeah. yeah, so I cleaned them all down with um, you know brake cleaner um, to get <laughs> oh, Jesus. Hey, you know, I, I guess I'm really brake cleaner. It, 
if you really wouldn't, I have some great brake cleaner. It's uh, <laughs> I'll have to. I forgot what the brand name is, but I bought a case of it because it will clean anything, but it will not strip paint off. So wow. yeah, so I just so I just had this image of, of Kyle yeah. like gingerly taking a bit of paraffin wax and just kind of rubbing it over. Just like, come on, <laughs> come on, work smooth. And then in the opposite, it's just like angrily just shooting brake cleaner out of going exactly. Clean off, exactly. damn it. <laughs> But yeah, I, I have not been able to solve that problem. But like I said, I, you know, I don't want to throw Jet under the bus just yet. I need to give them a call and uh, talk to their folks up there and see if, because uh, I don't think you know if I if it's just one clamp doing it. But now I got three or four. This this has to be a a, a problem they've seen before. So maybe there's a simple solution to it. Mm-hmm. At least I, I hope there is. When when I, you guys are doing uh, resin casting and, and turning and whatnot. Do you need clamps at all? <laughs> Not well, yeah. If you're gluing glue blocks on. Okay. Sometimes, okay. yeah. I still use clamps. Uh, you know, actually, I had to use some clamps today. I was making a mold. Uh, Got to clamp everything together and then screw it together. So, yeah. Yeah. I don't that, do that's... a whole lot of... I, I got a lot of clamps because I used to be pretty hardcore woodworking. So I got a lot of clamps. I even have like the hundred inch ones, or I don't know, they're they're huge, the jet mm. parallel ones. Okay. So I'm pretty mm-hmm. stocked up, and I, they don't get a lot of use at this point. But every once in a while, yeah, sometimes when you feel like getting rid of them, I'll pay shipping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. No those, those things are, are so expensive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, but um, just looking a little deeper into into those boras at the 12 inch that are $37. And I know like when I originally got my jets, I did like the, the cabinet door pack or whatever. It was like two twenty fours and two twelves or however that worked out. Um, there, the price goes up very minimally. The 24s and 31s are $2 different. The forties oh, wow. are only $47. Wow. So the, I guess so, the earlier ones, it's a much better value. Yeah. Your yeah, 20, your 24s are a much better value than the 12s you know, and hard, Hardly too big. For, I've bought a bunch of jet. those cabinet sets from probably from Bessie and from Jet. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a good deal on the clamps. I yes. can't say I've ever used those blocks to to clamp up like they show it, like doing a door. Yeah, with... no, <laughs> no, never nope. use mine either. Those yeah. are in the bottom of a cabinet, just collecting dust. Mm. Just don't use. Or the little um, what Jet? The Jet ones come with the little things for dog holes. Exactly. Too. Oh yeah, the little black that. bars. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I never use that either. I've got dog holes. I've just never thought of using. I, them. I use those actually. Okay. I have one of the the Festool uh, MFT tables, and I I've used those things a lot actually. Hmm. Well, there you go. There you go. What do you clamp so. up in them? Uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> lots of things. It's just it's nice because you can open and close them one handed. At that yep. point, and you don't—they're not moving around, and so yeah. you know, square things work pretty good. Picture, picture frames and different things like that. I think I've used it for. I got to make some frames, hopefully in time for Christmas. Mm-hmm. I'll, maybe I'll give them a try. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's probably just one of those things that hey, they're there, but I never think about using them. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I uh, came across a couple of things that I thought were interesting. Um, one is um, anyone that owns a Rikon bandsaw, um, Rikon just entered. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Sorry. I own one. Uh, but uh, they just came out with kind of an upgrade kit for the motor. Uh, you can get a DVR motor uh, for that. I think um, you might know the DVR motor. Nova has both a lathe 
and uh, they have that drill press that's mm -hmm. very programmable. So uh, basically, Rikon has this kit that'll retrofit a bunch of their bandsaws. It's $600, so it's not cheap, but it, but um, you get that uh, DVR uh, motor, which you can, you know, it'll you can preset it for any speed. So they actually like have various speeds for cutting wood, like if you're doing like scroll cutting versus resawing or or uh, anything like that. So you can actually uh, program the speed, and they have some preset speeds that they've tested that they think work best. But even in that, you can vary the range yeah. if you think it should be fast or not. But well, what I thought was interesting is they also have speeds for cutting non-ferrous metal, but also ferrous metal. So you can cut cast iron, regular steel, oh. things that things like that with this and also they have speed settings for plastics so mm. yeah so i thought that was really interesting that is really interesting i was yeah. i was my yeah. question was going to be why do i need to change the speed of my bandsaw um yeah because i i tend to only cut wood on it but i guess it, it probably mm -hmm. in, really increases the versatility of the bandsaw if, if you want to use mixed mixed media yeah that's that's what I thought. I thought it was a great idea. Um, you know, like I said, six hundred bucks is six hundred bucks. But I mean, to get that kind of functionality out of your bandsaw um, is really great. And I think it's really great that you know, they're you're able to put this kit on a variety of their bandsaws. And golly, my bandsaw is probably almost ten years old, and this this kit will work on it. So it's uh, it begs the question: yeah. Does it only work on their bandsaws? Um, of course it does. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> They've got some unique shaft or something that, that is you know, probably unique bolt, bolt, bolt hole pattern or something. I don't know, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if you could use it on another bandsaw. I'm sure once the thing goes on sale, um, uh, somebody might, uh, try to, you know, retrofit it onto another make or model of bandsaw, mm -hmm. but these are like for the 14 inch bandsaw. So it'd be something in that range. I would assume at, at that price. I mean, is that yeah. almost the price of a 14 inch bandsaw? It's, from um, yeah, I think you, I think seven, 800 bucks is her cheapest one. Yeah. Um, yeah that's so million. yeah. Yeah. It's but I mean, there. you don't get that kind of functionality. As far no, as, no, yeah. and that's kind of cool. And that's the, the yeah. DVR just means that it's electronically variable, Variables right? I mean, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it also senses the load, so it keeps a constant uh, cutting speed. It's not just oh, it you know spins it at twelve hundred RPMs. It, it you know under load, it will continue to spin it at twelve hundred RPM. So oh. it senses the load. So you know, um, I think that's what's great about it. So it's basically yeah, a giant brushless motor. It's electronically yeah. controlled. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. This kit comes not only with the control box that precedes that does the speed, but also with a new motor. So I'm sure mm -hmm. the motor's different. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it seemed, it seemed like a pretty interesting thing, especially if you're uh, cutting a bunch of mixed media. W Kyle, will they hey, now hey, hybrid blanks? Just saying. Yes. Resin and pine cones. I just, yeah, I I just use my wood one. I don't. I don't know if it would change a whole lot. What if you? What if you knew that just a few bits of torque less or RPMs less was just the sweet spot to make it a little better cut? <laughs> just a few. Just I don't know. If, well, you know, if I had a Rikon bandsaw, then maybe. See, yeah. I'd, I'd yeah, be seriously I'm, thinking about it then. Honestly, but. they'd be foolish if this didn't work with everybody, or at least a certain size. Yeah. Like, you know, 
any 14 inch saw could use a motor this this power rating whatever you know like yeah. why wouldn't it i'll have yeah. to see if i can hook it up to my 1929 delta yeah <laughs> well <laughs> <That's> of course <laughs> you can and you it's might so get a better good. price break probably in a few months when they actually introduce it onto a saw you know that would right. be my question. Standard they, saw or the one with this motor on Will they be yeah. making new saws that just come with this from the factory? Yeah, I would assume so. That'd you be figure. crazy not to. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a available soon kind of thing. I'm, I'm yeah. guessing that they'll yeah. have that as well. Yeah, and like I said, I, I heard on a video they they mentioned 599 but also I saw a flyer where, where it was 629 So it's... Six hundred bucks mm. price range, I imagine for the for the upgrade kit. But yeah, yeah, I'm sure they're going to have uh, different models of saws. Oh, you can buy the basic saw for you know seven hundred dollars, or you can buy the one with you know the upgraded uh, motor and the DVR controls for twelve hundred, or who knows what that price point would be. But right, yeah. yeah. Now, when you guys are cutting up blanks, is it bandsaw or table saw work? Or do you use them both, or how do you, what do you use to cut up? I'm assuming you're you you, do, you don't glue the blanks up in the tiny little pen size shapes, do you? You glue in bigger pieces and ripping them down to be pen size, or yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what what I what I do specifically is is for pen blanks, they, they usually typically come out as like a rectangular block, and those I'll cut on the table saw because it's it's pretty easy because they're going to be square. Mm-hmm. But if I'm cutting a a larger block that's you know a lot taller like it's more of like a um a a rectangular block that's and and i want to cut like thin strips for knife scales if people are going to be turning it into like a knife handle okay that'll definitely use the bandsaw for um and that's that's definitely a lot trickier because the bandsaw usually will cut it and have a lot of strings coming from it but uh usually most of the cutting i'm doing is on the table saw Okay, I, I I'm kind of the same way. the The only other thing I have a saw stop, and if I have metal in the blanks, I, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, put it in bypass mode." And I, I just I bought it so that it didn't bypass. <laughs> 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 and I got to be honest, at this point, I don't know where the key is, so Uh-oh. it doesn't have it. It doesn't have bypass mode. So if that if there's any metal in it, I always just do it on the bandsaw. But other than that, you know, I just. Yeah, same same thing. As long as it'll fit in the table saw, I usually cut it on that. And then weird, kind of weird things, you know, resawing and stuff like that, I do on the bandsaw. Is it ever a case on those blanks where you know there's such economy that you don't want to take such a wide curve from the from the table saw mm. that you could save on a bandsaw? Mm. No, I mean, I mean, I mean well, no. okay, yeah, I I actually have a, a an example. I, I actually use the bandsaw tonight to cut. Uh, I had a, like a one and three quarter square by about six and a half inch long blank. And I wanted to cut bottle stoppers out of it. And I actually took it over to the bandsaw just to kind of save a little bit and make sure I could get a little bit over two inch uh, mm-hmm. long uh, bottle yeah. stopper blanks out of this thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah, kind of, but not typically. I, I usually, I like the cut uh, from the table saw so much better because I'm, it's, way smoother you know? okay. i don't have to sand it or do anything to make it look decent or be, be able to see it so i i'm if i can do it on the table side much rather mm-hmm. yeah I, i'm i'm definitely in the same boat as as zach on that especially with the pen blanks since zach and i both are cutting so many of them it's so much better at, I'm, I'm sure zach will agree with this that 
to like sacrifice the little bit of curve you're going to lose to have a consistent smooth cut every single time. Because yeah. when you're cutting like a hundred of these or so, you don't want to have to spend another hour or two at the belt sander making a yeah. flush. <laughs> right. So. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, before we get to our main topic, one more thing that I noticed, um, I'm sure all of y'all saw this on an email for signed up for it is woodpecker has a new, slab flattening mill mm-hmm. um this was kind of interesting in the fact that um everyone's seen these carriages to flatten slabs usually you know there's some sort of you know jointed boards on either end and a router sled so woodpeckers has actually taken this and you know made it all out of you know anodized aluminum and the sled looks very neat it's nothing you couldn't make yourself but if you were in a semi-production where you're just going through slabs. This looks like a pretty interesting thing for someone that's doing some production work. You know, it is, it is pricey. It's like 700 to $900, depending on which one, uh, which size you need. But, um, I, for, for once, uh, uh, I know we've given peck woodpeckers a hard time the last uh, couple of podcasts on, on some of their one-time tools, but, for me, this looked interesting if you were in that business. It's not something that I would buy, but uh, I thought it was really interesting to take, you know, what a lot of people kind of cobble together, together to flatten a slab and actually, you know, make, uh, you know, something that's really accurate. And um, I don't know. That's just my opinion on it. I'm, I'm inclined to agree. Um, yeah. It looks like everything with woodpeckers, it looks incredibly well-made and probably yeah. very over-engineered and probably works like a charm. Um, and I guess if you're working with big slabs, the damn mm-hmm. slabs are so expensive that yeah. an expensive uh, jig to flatten them, it's probably not cost prohibitive if you're going to do multiple slabs. Um, yeah. It's not something that's in my everyday workflow and I'm not selling most of my work, so... I can't justify the price point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you were doing it routinely, I bet you this works nicer than most of the mm-hmm. homemade ones. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I caught my eye too. I, I'm actually, I want to do one of those resin river tables sometime soon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, you know, I looked at it. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't actually look at the price though. I think the price I would have been like, yeah, probably not. But yeah. it is, I, I made one yeah. of those little kind of, slab flattening kind of jig things Mm -hmm. yeah and it's okay you know that's why it kind of caught my eye i was like huh i wonder what that's and i didn't get a chance to like actually look into it i'm looking at it now it's pretty nice looking Uh, yeah yeah it looks awesome because i know the you know the finagling of those things is how to get it perfectly level perfectly parallel you know so that the thing is sliding evenly and yes you can do it on two by fours but how smooth are the two by fours and you know all that stuff. So, I mean, I've, I've seen setups, you know, when Diami, when we were in Iowa at wood, the, um, the guy using the, the, yeah. Tur- uh, what was that thing? A, a hand planer, a, a power planer. Yeah. He had the, the big, um, Triton, Makita? That, that monster Triton. one. Well, that's... it wasn't Triton, but no, he had the Triton one. Was it Triton? Yeah. Okay. Makita makes one also, but he had the Triton one. Cause the Triton one's like okay. a third of the price of the Makita one. Okay. Oh, um, oh, Oh, one of those power power planes. planes. Yeah, yeah power yeah, planes. Yeah. But he had that yeah. in a sled to flatten slabs. Oh, it that's was really cool. his setup. He was on like, uh, 
uh, aluminum C channel and all this other stuff that he was like, yeah, you can't find this stuff. I found it on a construction site, but it works really well. <laughs> it's like, geez, <laughs> thanks. So yeah, I know, but uh, this that the woodpeckers one. I mean, it's it. I think it takes a lot of the guesswork out of it, so you can actually, you yeah. know, if 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 that's into you know, the thing you're into, yeah. Sure. If I was making one, uh, you know, river table, I probably wouldn't do it. But if I was cranking out, you know, six to twelve a year, that might pay for itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Are th- are those all the rage right now? Oh yeah. Yes, they're all the rage. Overdone. Is it is it the new uh, farmhouse table? Is that what we're getting into? <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think so. They're just cool, you know. They really. They are. are. They are. Mhm. So. So I guess we'll move on to our main topic. So I guess the first thing um, I'd like to ask each of y'all is, so how'd you get into resin casting? You want to go, Casey? Uh, Sure. Yeah. So I I touched on it a little bit earlier and um, Mm -hmm. about me making the pens from, from wine barrels and then wanting to try to make some pens out of grapevine. And so I actually tried that. Um, I was... Out of like a ton of pieces of grapevine, I was only able to make one pen. And it was really clear to me that if I was going to be able to actually make pens or anything out of it, I was going to need to figure out how to use resin or some other type of medium to fill in the gaps because the grapevine is very rarely straight. It's usually cracked and hollowed in a lot of places once it's dry. And so that's pretty much what led me to start watching a lot of YouTube videos and just teaching myself the process. I mean, I actually was, it's pretty cool now being in a position where I'm, I'm pretty good friends with Zach. And so that's kind of how it all started. I originally was just making it as pens and, and other things. And then once they kind of gained traction and popularity, I started just making more of the blanks of them, but that's pretty much my whole story. And, um, yeah. So Zach, how did you get into, uh, uh, resin casting? Well, it, honestly, pretty similar story. Uh, I stumbled, well, I started getting into pen turning and I wanted to make, you know, living in Nevada, I wanted to make something local uh, using local materials. And there's uh, like, there's a lot of like Douglas fir and pine trees around here. And that's about the worst <laughs> thing on the planet to work with, whether it's on a lathe or anywhere. anywhere. So that I was like, I don't want to do that, you know? And so I thought, I wonder if I could turn sagebrush and, you, you could, I guess, maybe, but that stuff is really kind of stringy and just, it's not a tree. It's not like right. wood. It's more like a, you know, plant or it's a, a brush. And so it made more sense to use like smaller chunks of it. And then I stumbled upon, uh, you know, the resin thing. I actually, I had no clue about it. When I got started doing this stuff, uh, it was like probably about six or seven years ago. And I kind of just like, I think I stumbled on it in the the Pen Turners Association, uh, International Association of Pen Turners, the IAP.com or org, mm-hmm. no, penturners.org. Um, and there was a whole, it's like a forum, and they had a whole resin casting chat room thing. And so I started reading about it, and I thought, you know, I bet this resin stuff, I didn't really know what it was, you know. <laughs> it was... <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess this will hold all these little pieces together, and that way I can actually get through sagebrush. Um, so found uh, this guy, Curtis Seebeck. He runs turntex.com, and he had a few. Uh, this is back in the day. There was very few YouTube channels that had anything to do with 
you know, resin casting stuff for, for like turning or woodworking. Mm-hmm. And so he had a couple videos and he's like, he was using it for, um, uh, prickly pear cactus. Okay. Uh, he, he's somehow he was using that and, and he also started using it for mesquite wood. He's over in, in Texas. And so he kind of started doing it with that and had a few videos like, <laughs> this is how you do it kind of. And mm-hmm. I thought, okay, went out and bought me some resin and tried it out and I, and at that point, like I said, I was I was doing wood turning more and, and, and woodworking small wood crafts uh, on Etsy and stuff like that, and I was really into that stuff and and, and really into woodworking in general. And when I started playing with resin, I was like, oh my god, I'm hooked! Like you can make it any color, you can make it any shape, you can turn it into anything. And so that's kind of how I got into it. I just kind of wanted to bind some some sagebrush together and kind of started you know the first few times i i used it it i just started opening my eyes like man you could do anything with this you know <laughs> sky's the limit kind of thing did you ever consider using the resin in more you know standard furniture as opposed to turnings no not really um i was gonna start making some smaller you know one of the big things that i was making at the time when i got started with this was ring boxes okay. and i'm still thinking about maybe trying that out i think the biggest problem is it's hard to it's, it's a lot of work to sand up mm. uh resin uh if if you're cutting it and and shaping it and doing stuff like you know uh, i guess cutting on it you know with with blades or or whatever and then you have to go through and, and polish it to you know a glossy finish it's a lot of work <laughs> it's a lot harder than wood because mm-hmm. you kind of, you know, the, you don't stop at, you know, 180, 220, 400. You're, you're stopping at like 4,000, you know. Mm-hmm. So right. there's a lot more work involved with that. So it's almost easier to try and cast parts in place, you know, make a master of it and then just make a silicone mold of something big like that. I think that would probably be an easier way to go. Okay. Uh, that's one of the nice things about resin is if you if you make the perfect whatever one time <laughs> if you use silicone make a mold of it then you just pour resin in there and it just makes copies of it you know so that's that's kind of i think if you were actually going to get into you know larger scale stuff like that that's probably how i would do it okay so dion you should have made a mold of the entertainment center <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> you make a perfect one make a mold of it and then just pour resin in there can you domino into resin <laughs> yeah sure you can do anything it works yeah. pretty much the same as you know i i use i mean you i've seen people use uh run it over the joiner mm-hmm. which i yeah i didn't yeah it, it the, the biggest difference i would say is you know wood there there's a lot of air inside of wood mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's grain and you know there's there's air space in there so it's not solid surface and i think the biggest the biggest difference is, especially like if you're a wood turner, going from turning wood to to turning resin products or plastics or anything like that, it seems slower. You know, it's it's like sluggish because the tool is actually cutting probably twice as much actual material off because okay. there's no airspace in the middle. So that's I'd say that's the only difference. Uh, but yeah, you can route it. You can you know obviously sand it, uh, turn it, cut it. I mean, I use the same blades that i used for woodworking on everything do you need any specialty tools for the resin um in uh, well let's talk about 
the casting of it in a minute, but just in terms of the cutting and the shaping and the sanding, is it all woodworking tools, or do you need any special ones specifically for resin? Uh, for the most part, it's I, I don't really I don't have any specialty tools. The only thing that I would say might be specialty is Easy Wood Tools came out with a negative rake cutter for their their uh, uh, carbide cutters, and that works a lot better when you're turning it. It's just less aggressive. Um, so you don't get chipping and stuff like that. So that's the only thing that I can think of. Can you think of anything, Casey? No, I can't, I can't either. And I mean, <clears throat> they only came out with that product. What Zach, like a month ago or two, maybe. Mm-hmm. And two, so, two up, ago, yeah. yeah. So up until yeah. then, there literally was no specialty product really. Yeah. Um, I, I heard y'all mention that. I listened to your podcast, I guess a couple of podcasts ago where you went into a bunch of these, these topics that were asked. And one of them is, do you need any special tools? But tell me a little bit about the negative rake. So exactly what have they done to that carbide cutter that's different from the typical one? Well, so a, a normal one is just uh, like a flat piece of carbide. Uh, right. The top is is flat, and then you have kind of your angle you right. know, on, on the edge. And so what they've done is the negative rake puts a negative downward angle right at the tip. Okay. And so it's it's kind of a lot of people. The, what they would do is with the normal cutters is they would lift them up so that it's it's angled down off the tool rest. Ah, so it's, gotcha, it's kind yeah. of already you know you're 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 creating a negative angle, mm-hmm. and it's it's just less aggressive. If if you were pointing that up, that's going to be more aggressive. It's going to want to dig in more. Mm-hmm. And so. They just kind of the, the the problem with holding the tool like that is it's completely awkward. Right. <laughs> it doesn't it's not comfortable. <laughs> and uh, Carl Jacobson was uh, one of the people that did that a lot, and he's you know he's sponsored by Easywood Tools, and so they st- I think they just saw him doing that all the time, and were like you know we should probably come out with a new <laughs> product so you don't look like an idiot when you're turning. No, okay. so they they work together on it, and and it just. I think there's there's two things. Like I said, holding a carbide tool like that, the way that you the way that you want to turn with a with a carbide tool is you're you're generally going to hold it level, you know, right. horizontal, and you want to hit that right at the hit the the turning blank right at this like center point, the midpoint. Um, that's going to be the best way to cut. So that's what they kind of tell you to you know the the kind of thing that you want to do when you're turning with those. Um, in if if you're using uh, high-speed steel scrapers, they, they've already had negative rake cutters. Uh, you know, like that, that's been a thing in wood turning for a long time is just kind of taking and, and giving a negative rake on that top angle just to kind of make it a little bit less aggressive. And that's what I was using. I was just using high-speed steel tools a lot more than carbide mm-hmm. with a negative rake on it anyway. And when, and I, when I was up in Portland for the, the, the National AAW uh, Symposium, they kind of, Chris, Chris said Easywood Tools, I was doing demos for them up there, and Chris kind of pulled me over, and he's like, hey, check this out. And when, when I saw the cutter, I was like, oh, man, that is going to be a game changer, because I was already using it with high-speed steel. The mm. difference is you got to sharpen those all the time. And right. some materials, especially like the really hard, stabilized stuff, um, there's, there's some things that just completely just tear up high-speed steel i mean you're going to be sharpening literally after every cut (laughs) and so that's when i back in the day that's when i would pull out carbide if i knew i was going to be the grinder more than i was turning i would just pull out carbide but it can be difficult if it gets kind of catchy you know 
And so when they showed me that, I'm like, oh man, I'm going to be using those things <laughs> a lot. And they, it just makes turning more fun. Um, one of the one of the areas that I had a lot of that I struggled with, and this is the fir- when I was when I was looking at those those new cutters, uh, this actually was the first thing that I thought of when you're hollowing. If the tool grabs inside of something, you know, like where you're 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 hollowing out like a, a bowl. Uh, I'm thinking more like a jar or like a hollow form. Okay. If you get a catch or if it grabs inside there, that that's like, you know, I got to go change my shorts kind of thing. Like I, it's just, I hated it. I I didn't like doing it by hand. And I even went and bought a, one of those like articulated snake arm things where it held it in place Mm -hmm. just because it was less likely to grab because it it was held in place on two axes. You Mm -hmm. just kind of moved it. And, uh, and now that they have those negative rate cutters, I mean, you can, you can hollow with one hand, (laughs) like it's not, they're just so not aggressive that you can, you know, you have so much more control and it makes it more fun. You're not worried about, oh, is the tool going to grab on the resin? You're just working on the, you know, the actual cutting action. Yeah. At this point I can just get lost just hollowing by hand on stuff. It's fun, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. It kind of changes, you know, the way the way it all works. I just like I said, I think it makes it a lot more fun when you're not worrying about is the tool going to catch. <laughs> I would think just so. Just focusing on the sure. project at hand, you know. I just picked up my my easy wood tools. I've got one of the big roughers, you know, the old oh, yeah. CI one. And just mm-hmm. looking at it, like and looking at a picture online, like what is it? Oh, okay, I see what it's doing. I'd I'd, I'd have to use it to know. The difference, I guess. Yeah. Now it, it does. It's not going to help. It, it's. It's not. I wouldn't recommend the negative rake ones for wood. Um, they're okay. They don't, it doesn't work that way. Uh, maybe on some of the like super dense hardwoods, it m- maybe might help out a little bit. But um, it's. It's actually too little aggressive. It's. It's not aggressive enough for that. You. You want to actually have a little bit more aggressive cutter when you're just hmm. doing normal wood turning. But like I like I was saying, with the resins though, there's more material there, and the cutting edge tends to kind of grab into it a little bit sometimes. And if you if you end up getting I don't know, putting the tool in, you know, like feeding it in too fast or moving it side to side too fast, mm-hmm. a lot of times with those regular cutters, it, it'll grab in, and, and you get this. It basically just like tears it up you know and <laughs> it grabs on it and it's, it's basically like getting a catch if you're wood turning uh, yeah. going, if you go the wrong way with the you know cutting blade it'll catch and it, it scares you you know <laughs> but with the the negative rate cutters i mean i at this point i don't know anybody that actually uses those that has gotten like that catch Ooh, i, I wow. have yeah like the, it, it totally eliminates it actually mm-hmm. a funny story heath knuckles was doing a demo for them uh, in Portland in, in uh, I think it was June this year. And, uh, you know, we're at the Easy Wood Tools booth, right? So, of course, we're using Easy Wood Tools to turn. He had never picked up a carbide tool before in his life, and he's doing a demo, a live demo <laughs> at their booth, right? And I'm kind of like, okay, you know, we'll see how this goes. And even I was like, I don't use them that much at, at that point. I wasn't using them as much as, uh, as, a, as I was, like, high-speed steel tools. And so I even did a little bit of practicing before this demo. And I'm like, okay, just make sure that I, you know, this, I got everything down and, you know, everything's Mm going to go good. 
So Heath gets up there, and they're like live streaming on Easy Wood Tools Facebook page, and he gets a catch on the. It was hilarious. And then like right after the demo, then they're like, "Oh yeah, we're coming out with these new easy, you know, negative rake things." And I'm just like, "Why didn't you give that to Heath the first time? Like, <laughs> yeah. you should have launched it before this, you know." So it was kind of funny that he that happened, and then they're like, "Oh, and we came up with these cutters that don't catch." And I'm like, "Yeah, I bet Heath would have liked that." Five minutes ago, <laughs> so pretty good, pretty good product. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. So, so you, so what do you mainly use? Easy Wood or uh, your regular turning tools, or is it like half and half? Or well, depends since on what you're doing. New cutters, I, yeah. I pretty much use those the Easy Wood tools ones. Uh, I did te- product testing for them, so they sh- mm-hmm. it was kind of this whole secret between June and August whenever they released them. Yep. And uh, and they when they showed them to me, they're like, hey, we want you to you know do some testing and see if you can find any problems. You know, maybe make some blanks that are I don't know more difficult to you know mm-hmm. turn. And so they sent me a bunch of tools to to do the testing with and. It was interesting because I, like I said, I, I didn't really use carbide that much for for very mm-hmm. for a lot of different things, and that actually that testing forced me to use carbide tools for all kinds of things. And I, what I actually found out was on pen turning, I actually get a smoother surface using carbide at this point, um, and which means less sanding. Right. <laughs> so it, it was just one of those things where I'm like, you know, there's certain things where I'm going to pull out, you know, like the parting tool. Easy Wood Tools does have a parting tool, but it's not. It it has to be used a very specific way. So you know, I, I still have high speed steel tools for certain mm. things. If I'm turning wood, I'm sh- certainly gonna, you know, if I'm like turning a wood bowl, I'm pulling mm. out a, a bowl gouge. You know, it's just, right. it's gonna work. Better. But for a lot of things, if it's resin, I'm pretty much using carbide for most things at this point. Mm. Is that just because of dulling, of of Randers? standard steel tools tool yeah. steel yeah i don't have to i don't have to deal with that um you know with with sharpening which is not a big deal if you have like the wolverine jig set up and all that stuff sharpening is not really that big of a deal but at the same time i mean you don't have to stop ever <laughs> yeah know? so, it's, so it's not it's not the matter of it of it doing more damage to the blade it doesn't wear down faster yeah, or anything no yeah because uh, it's resin it's just the fact that it's, it's just, you don't have to sharpen carbide as much. Yeah. I don't have to sharpen them. And I, it's just, it, I don't know. I kind of got, well, and like I was saying, I can kind of get a better finish at this point, uh, using carbide tools. The negative rake high speed steel scrapers worked really well. I was mm-hmm. getting a really good finish on those, but those you have to sharpen a lot more. Um, that burr kind of wears down quick. So Yep. The negative rake high speed steel ones, they are for were originally made for wood and also work well for the resin, because the yeah negative rake yeah, carbide were specifically for the resin, right? Yeah, negative rake carbide that was that was introduced uh, specifically for resin uh, products, but uh, the the negative rake scrapers it, it's just a scraper and people would put uh, it's just a high speed steel scraper which is a, a tool that a lot of people use. You can kind of. You can get in there and just kind of take, if you have like, let's say for bowl turning, you go in there with your bowl gouge and if, if you're, you don't have a, you know, really smooth cut surface, you can come in with a scraper and it'll just kind of, you know, finish that smooth things out and that negative rake would make it even 
less aggressive so that you could just kind of smooth surfaces out with wood. So it was a, it's a tool that a lot of, you know, wood turners, uh, you know, turning wood, uh, use a lot and that's, and it works great for resin too. I like them too, but, but they, they wear those, that specific tool compared to a gouge, I found wore down faster and I would have to go to the, the sharpening a lot more. And so given the choice, if I'm looking at a high-speed steel scraper and a, a carbide negative rake, I'm going to pick the negative rake, uh, carbide, all day. Okay. Just because yeah. I don't have to mess with sharpening and all that stuff. So that's more, again, that, that's more of what it is. It's just, it's just a, well, more less maintenance to the blade and I can continue working. Right. Well, and, and I guess the other thing, the, the other reason for me is I do a lot of odd materials. You know, my, my thing is kind of embedding random stuff in resin, and a lot of that stuff is <laughs> super hard. I mean, you know, when you start stabilizing things, uh, it, it can be really abrasive and, and really hard material. And at that point, I don't want high-speed steel at all because you'd be right. sharp. Literally, you'd take a cut. Like even on a pen blank, you would take one cut, and then you'd have to go sharpen it because that edge got dull that quick. And at that point, you know, it, it's there's there's just no reason to use high speed steel because it's it's just not uh, hard enough material. So the carbide will last longer. It'll if you're doing something really really hard. I mean, even the carbide's going to wear out kind of, and you'll have to you know move. If it's square, you'd have to switch it to a new side or whatever, mm-hmm. or circle. Yeah. You have to rotate them, but but it, it's going to last probably at minimum ten times as long. Um, as high speed steel, I would actually say more than that, you know? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, so, you know, since we're talking about tools, maybe we should move into, so if someone was wanting to get into resin casting, I think Diami mentioned this, what kind of setup do you need for that? For the actual casting process. Yeah. For the actual casting. I've been talking a lot. You go ahead, Casey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so for, for the casting, there's, there's a few main, things you're going to need and uh it's more on the equipment side right so you're going to need we are pretty strong in saying that you should use pressure rather than vacuum so i I would recommend getting a pressure pot you basically can get a pressure tank like a paint tank from harbor freight or some other manufacturers and then slightly modify it so that it just holds pressure you need that you need obviously the resin itself and there's many different kinds many different brands so that's kind of ambiguous. And then uh, you need most of the resins are going to need either a scale to weigh it or you're going to need some type of cups that can uh, measure the volume mm-hmm. of it. And then um, also depending on what you're doing, like what you're casting, you're going to need a mold, right? So if you're doing some like figurines or something super specific, you'll probably want to go down the silicone silicone mold route so that you can get exactly the finished product when you take it out. Or if you're mm. doing something that's similar to what Zach and I are doing, you're probably going to make like a block mold, whatever kind of shape that block may be, and then kind of manipulate the resin after it comes out. Um, obviously, with the, the pressure, you're going to need an air compressor to, to give that pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else I'm missing, Zach? Uh gloves yeah gloves, <laughs> gloves stir sticks. sticks yeah um if you want to add color you, you'll you can either use dyes or you can use uh mica powder 
type pigments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I'm looking at my casting area. Oh, cups. Yeah. Something to, to mix it in. Yeah. So any uh, kind of dye, like uh, we're talking like trans tin, or are we talking like maybe what you might find in paint type? No. Story? Most of the most of the manu- most of the manufacturers have. Oh, their own dyes. dyes. Yeah. For that particular type of resin. Okay, gotcha. Certain resins yeah. don't, it doesn't matter as much. Like you could use acrylic yeah. paint, I think, with, with polyester resin. Um, mm-hmm. But the thing is, some of them, some epoxies, and then Alumilite is a pretty popular brand uh, of resin in, in turning, um, and it's a polyurethane-based resin. Some epoxies and polyurethanes do not like moisture at all. Like it's mm-hmm. going to ruin the casting. And so some dyes like acrylic paint is water-based. That's not going to work with alumilite. Some other types of dyes have water in them. I don't think trans tint would work. Yeah. Uh, I think it might have some sort of, I don't know. I'm, I, I, I've never tried it. I'm pretty sure it doesn't work with alumilite though. Um, I just use alumilite dyes myself and those work with any resin. So okay. it doesn't matter what kind of resin. That's that's kind of why I just stuck with that because I'd rather yeah. just not worry about it. The problem is if if you you can test it and just see if there's a reaction, you know, with mm-hmm. a small amount. Yeah. But I was kind of like, mm-hmm. why not just not worry about it and just use these dyes? <laughs> you know. Yeah, the only resin I've worked with is epoxy, and so I know transgent works in that. But mm-hmm. <laughs> just didn't know know uh, know about that now. Now, so when you're actually um, doing the casting, so you're doing it in this pot, I assume there's, I mean, what's that process like? Is there some sort of liner in this pot or, or you know, I'm thinking about you're putting liquid in here, you're putting it under pressure. Um, after that is cured, um, what are you doing to remove it from the pot? Do you, is there a release agent or something like that on there? Yeah, so yeah. Um, <clears throat> I'll kind of walk you through it to help yeah. you help you visualize it more. So essentially, yeah. we kind of have um, a rectangular block mold just made out of HDPE plastic, so that okay. resin doesn't stick to that. Actually, it, the the way I describe it is that it'll cling to it, but it won't stick to it. So if you give it any type of force, it'll it should come off. So you'll take that mold with the resin in it. And here's here's the part that I think will help more is we put it into a mold rack. So we basically build um, a, a little system that will hold the mold in the pressure pot so that there's going to be no spilling or anything like that. And more importantly, depending on the type of pressure pot you have, when you put air into it, you kind of have a roof over the mold. So you're not going to be spraying resin everywhere. Some pressure pots have a little diffuser at the inlet so that it shoots the air uh, to the sides and not down. So you won't, you wouldn't have that problem anyway, but, um, <laughs> but still it, it helps to have the roof. I right. definitely first, first casting I ever did. It just blew the resin everywhere in my pressure pot. <laughs> oh. like, that's great. That's awesome. Yeah. That's what <laughs> I was that trying again. to picture, you know, you know, you just not, dumping not, resin into yeah. the pot. What? No. Yeah. You, yeah. You're going to pour your resin into a mold and then put the yeah. mold in the pressure pot. pot. Now, technically I actually don't really use those racks myself. Um, oh, okay. But sometimes I do, but most of the time I don't, I just kind of stick it in there. Um, the pressure pots that I use though, have a pretty flat base. They're not very rounded or anything like that. So they pretty much just kind of go in there and there's not really a big problem. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if I'm doing like a bunch, uh, sometimes you'll kind of batch out a bunch of them. Then I'll put it on a rack system so that it, it holds lots of them and I can get them all in there and just pop it in in one shot. 
Mm-hmm. Does yours have a diffuser like on the air inlet so it shoots it to the yeah. side? Or okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Now you said you you recommend doing the pressure pot instead of a vacuum. So the only really experience I have is you know. Uh, blue spruce tools and their mallets and chisel yep. handles that are, mm-hmm. and I think he uses a vacuum to get the resin into the wood. But I just wondering what's the what's the difference there? Well, there's uh, the difference. I assume there there's, there's a big cost difference. But there's, besides there's, that, <laughs> yeah, that's actually that's stabilizing resin. There's there's a okay. difference between uh, w- resin casting and and stabilizing. Mm-hmm. When you're doing stabilizing, what you're doing is you're you're forcing resin into the inside of the the wood kind of like think pressure treating in a sense like pressure treated lumber it's it's the only difference is when most of us the the way that we do the stabilizing process we actually do it opposite of pressure treating we suck Mm -hmm. all of the the atmosphere out of the chamber and and air and -hmm. then when you reintroduce it and, and you got your wood submerged under this resin Mm-hmm. And then when you reintroduce the the atmospheric pressure, it basically forces that resin where the air was, and so it fills it from the inside out. So that's that's kind of the wood stabilizing process. Um, and and the other difference with with stabilizing resin compared to casting resin, casting is going to be you're going to add part A and part B, mix it up, and then it's going to harden mm-hmm. over time. Stabilizing resin needs to be baked to cure. So it's going to cure at a certain temperature. Uh, um, it's a okay. very thin, uh, thin liquid. Um, almost kind of looks like, almost kind of looks like like gasoline or something like that. I, I guess in a sense, it's very very thin liquid, and you want it to be really thin so that it pre- penetrates into the wood right. as best as it can. And then when you pull those out, you'll kind of dry off the excess. The atmospheric pressures holding that resin kind of inside the wood, and then you pop it in the oven at about 200 degrees and then you got it basically plasticized kind of like i said kind of similar to kind of like sort of like pressure treating um Mm -hmm. filling those inner gaps with resin rather than air and so at that point moisture doesn't really you don't have the wood movement issue that's why uh, blue spruce is using that type of wood um it it keeps you know even even if you you went from like the desert to you know like a tropical jungle moisture really can't penetrate that much into the wood it can a little bit still but not like you know like a yeah. totally open piece of wood where moisture is just going to get soaked into it and then you know change the properties of it right now in terms of that um the stabilizing resin is there any two-part stabilizing that reacts chemically or it all has to be heated to activate it well if you're doing if you're doing the one that that most of most of us kind of you know garage wood turners <laughs> are doing it's it's pretty much the same way the, the only brands that i know of you're you're putting it under vacuum it's it's a you know bake to cure type resin mm-hmm. um, the only other thing that i know of personally is there is pressure some people do actually go the opposite direction and, and do pressure uh, stabilizing, but you know you you have to overcome atmospheric pressure. <laughs> so I think you're talking like thousands of pounds of pressure okay. to get to force that liquid in, and at that point you're literally talking pressure treating. 
Um, and it's, it's kind of a more like industrial process at that point. And so most people aren't doing that unless they're like mass producing stabilized wood, as far as I understand. Okay. Yeah. I don't know any two part type things. It, it makes it, it, it would make it really difficult to make it a two part thing like that. Um, it, it's nice having all the time in the world until you put it in the oven, you know, right. right. It'll, it'll allow it to soak in longer. And, and, you know, some of the stuff that I do, I'm, I'm doing multiple colors, which means kind of multiple processes of, of that same process. And you really need, I mean, sometimes, you know, you'll let the, the wood soak in it for days. Oh, wow. So that it, yeah, so that it really pulls in. And you can dye the, the stabilizing resin as well. So, you know, if you're coloring it, sometimes you need to, uh, especially depending on the species of the wood and, and the grain and all that kind of stuff, it may have to sit in there. I mean, I know people that have let it soak for weeks <laughs> trying to, to get a certain color. Under under vacuum that whole time? No, not necessarily. It, it kind of just depends. Honestly, stabilizing, it's, it's, it's got a lot of art to it. <laughs> it really <laughs> depends. I mean, even if you're, even if you're running the same species of wood, you know, different grain, uh, if there's spalting in it, that can change things. Like it just, there's a lot of differences, uh, you know, just one piece of wood to another. So it, it can kind of, you know, things can kind of change the way that that process works, the, t- the amount of time, you know, you may need to spend doing it. Um, but, and, and then especially if you're doing the, the multiple processes, I know some people that do multiple colors, Mm-hmm. And they do it a certain way where where you're literally doing the entire process over and over again. And the problem is if you if you run it under vacuum and then bake the, the you know a, the full amount of resin in, there's not a lot of space left in there. <laughs> so you right. could you know and then they'll they'll do it again. And at that point you have to do it for twice as long. And so every successive color that you do has to be done like at least twice as long as the last time. And so some people run them, you know, under vacuum for a week. <laughs> That's not the way that I do it. I like to just kind of soak them in colors first, bake it in a little bit, and then and then run the full vacuum on the second round. Makes it a lot easier. <laughs> okay. Faster. Now, I, we've talked in the past about the stabilizing, and I'm holding in my hand a sample of uh, stabilized timber strand that you made for me years ago. Yeah, have you done anything with um, that? I glued it into a corner that I still have to pack. Nice. Um, though I did, of, a, of the similar material, I made the winning hardwood derby car. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, was about, I was about to bring that up. I thought you were holding your hardwood derby car. No, the, the hardwood derby car is... Honestly, I don't know where it was. It was in the mantle, and my wife moved it. <laughs> um, but Mine's a doorstop, by the way. <laughs> I, I'm really intrigued by the... Um, by the stabilization process, but I would like to use it on furniture sized pieces. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it has to be baked is a, a practical hurdle that I've needed to get over. Um, I've kind of slowly been assembling the components to do the stabilization. I've never actually stabilized something, but in my head, what I want to stabilize are bigger pieces. Um, yeah. So, I have what I think is a ridiculous idea, but I wanted to bounce it off you, Zach. Yeah. Um, and Casey, too, if you, if you do a lot of uh, stabilization. I know I'm more familiar with Zach's stabilization. Um, 
What do you think about buying a used electric stove and taking it apart and rebuilding it to be a bigger chamber? Yeah, that would work. Using the heating element, but exactly. otherwise making exactly. it. Exactly. Okay. I'm sure it worked. Well, I could make something out of sheet metal and fireproof insulation to make yeah. the chamber itself. Well, what's yeah. the lowest temperature that you need to get to? I mean, can you get? Can Minimum? you do something at a, so, like 140 degrees versus 200? No. You, well, maybe. Yeah. Uh, it'd be tough. So what you're shooting for is is the optimal temperature is like yeah. 185 that's that's okay. i think what it needs to reach to cure fully and you need to bring the entire piece to that temperature for it to start curing okay. mm-hmm. um, you don't really want to go over 200 though because at that point it can kind of start it's it, it's it's too hot and it kind of can make it bleed out more mm-hmm. which means you're just wasting you know resin and and it's not as stabilized as it as you'd like it to be, I guess. <laughs> okay. So yeah. you're kind of shooting for that 185. Now the thing is, though, I mean, the, the reason I don't, I, have, I don't yeah, really the, know totally, but I I know that it'll also cure mm-hmm. if if it's it, it could cure in the shop in the bottle at 85 degrees as well. And so I don't. That's the thing that I don't. I just don't know enough about the chemistry and everything that's going on with that. Mm-hmm. As far as I understand it, though, you, it, for the piece, like a, like if you're actually stabilizing a piece of wood, you really need to get the entire piece of wood core and everything to 185, I think, is, is kind of the magic number. Okay. Yeah. The, the reason I ask that, uh, Diami, is, you know, for steam bending parts and, um, and drying um, green wood, I do have a kiln. Oh. And it goes, uh, you know, it's nothing but a glorified uh, easy bake oven, but it's pretty big. I mean, it's four foot by probably three foot um, in width and depth, and probably three foot in height, if not more. Um, and I can get that up to 120, but that's where I, that's that's where my thermostat cuts it off. Uh, I'm. I'll try to reset it and see if I can get it up to 185. Well, I to, to overcook your, your kiln, but I, that would be interesting. <laughs> it's not uh, going to hurt anything inside the kiln, but um, it'd be interesting to see if I could get it up to that temperature and it, it would hold because it's relatively uh, simple to make and you can make it any size. Right, right. And I'm thinking yeah. something like the size and shape of a large steam box like you'd use yeah. for, ch- for chair making. And I have, yeah. I have 220 in the shop, so... I, in my mm. head, I'm thinking buy like a, a cheap used electric oven, I think, and then kind of take it apart and use the components of it to to make this what's essentially an oven. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, or you could get one loud. of those. Are you are you just you know look on uh, auction sites and get one of those super big industrial walk in ovens? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no biggie. <laughs> I'll we'll put the, we'll finished piece, the finished piece of furniture right in that oven. Exactly. Yeah, that's the whole thing. Boom. Then, then the other thing becomes I need a vacuum chamber that's big enough to do yeah, you know, real exactly. furniture parts. So that's another another hurdle to get through. With. That's not too bad. Uh, the, the chambers that I use are made out of PVC. And so you can get any, you know, whatever size diameter PVC and it literally can be any length. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know guys that have like 10 foot long chambers <laughs> do you find that the how do they bake what's in them if they're 10 foot or they well, just they're, lots they're, of little things in it yeah they're they're putting lots of smaller pieces in them 
do you find that the the clear PVC or the clear vacuum chamber is necessary so you can see the bubbles and kind of play back and forth? I know when you're doing it, you're you're releasing the the vacuum and returning the vacuum and releasing and returning to to get it all sucked in all the way, right? Uh, well, when you when you first start up, when, once everything's the reason you're doing that kind of on and off thing is so that it doesn't overflow. Okay. When you when you start sucking the air out, it looks like it's actually like boiling. <laughs> it's kind of how it, what it looks like in the chamber. It's actually just sucking air bubbles out, and and it's just like foaming in a sense. And so these air bubbles, what what ends up happening is if if you have an air bubble that's let's just say one unit of whatever measurement. If you put it under vacuum, it's going to grow. If you put it under pressure, it's going to sh- collapse. It's going to mm-hmm. shrink. So what's happening is all of the air bubbles in, in that chamber are, are being expanded and sucked to the top. And so the reason that you're kind of letting that valve off is you're just making sure that it, that, that resin doesn't overflow and suck into the vacuum chamber or into, into the vacuum pump. Gotcha. Mm. So once you've gotten it to the point where it's gotten a, you know, enough of the air out that it's not going to keep, um, you know, f- foaming that the, the the actual liquid part up to the top where the the, the inlet valve is, then you want to just keep it closed completely, okay. and, and reach and reach the you know the the maximum vacuum that you can pull. And to do that. And to to visibly make sure it doesn't overflow again, do you need do you need it to be clear, or could you go with you know like regular schedule forty PVC that's with solid white? Uh, you could. I I personally think that being able to see in on the sides is kind of the way to go uh, because you, the the thing is you need to know where the air bubbles are actually coming from. Mm-hmm. Once the air has, once you've pulled all the air out of the wood. If there are air bubbles trapped underneath the wood and they're just kind of floating out, out the side of it, you know, like out from underneath it, you're done. As long as the air bubbles aren't coming from the inside of the wood, that's that's when you know you're done. So gotcha. I like being able to see in on the side. There's not a lot that you can see from the top, I, I don't think. I don't, I don't think it's very useful having just a top view personally. That's It's just I haven't really ever used it that way Uh Casey does that. You you have more like the the acrylic lid ones, right, Casey? <clears throat> yeah, on on the two that I have that are like that, I have glass lids and I would I would say <clears throat> it's absolutely necessary to be able to see the top. Okay. What Zach's talking about is 100% helpful and it and it's correct. Um but you do need to be able to see, well, I I should rephrase that a little bit. If your lid is going to be within I don't know what you would agree with, Zach. Maybe like four to six inches of where you're going to be putting the resin. You should be able to see it because you don't... The reason why you don't want it to overflow is because if it gets into the line in your vacuum pump, it can really cause some problems. Right. But if you wanted to use a white lid and then make it a foot higher than you're ever going to fill the resin up to, you're probably going to be okay. But if, if well, you're not you're, you're gonna, talking about not being able to see in at all. Is that what you're saying? Like, yeah, that, you definitely need to see in to see what's going on inside the chamber somehow. I like having a clear PVC pipe, like being able to see in from the sides. I don't really think that being able to see in, like, ha- like a lot of people use like a pressure pot or something similar to that, just a, a metal pot, mm-hmm. and then put a lid, like a, a glass or a thick acrylic lid on it. So where you're seeing inside, but you can't see into the what's going on from the side of it. 
My what I was saying is I prefer uh, the Turntex type chambers where it's a, a clear PVC pipe where you can see in the entire chamber on the sides. The lid isn't, you know, it, it's not clear on that one. But I I don't think that the top view is very valuable. I think being able to see in from the sides is really where it's at. Is what I was saying. Personally, that's just kind of a lot of people use the other type, but as well, but. I, I yeah no I agree I agree a hundred percent it's just what he was asking is if you could have um, a white P- PVC lid and have it be opaque and I was saying that if oh, you no. can't see through the sides you need to be able to see a way and make sure you're not sucking cactus juice into the chamber yeah yeah <laughs> yeah that that's what I was saying yeah you need so. somehow you need to be able to see in the in, into what's going on yeah gotcha just cools. Cactus juice, I like that. Yeah, it's a stabilizer, so, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, so uh, yeah, that brings me to the next question. So we've talked about, you know, the the tools for turning the finished product product or cutting it, as well as the equipment you need to actually do resin casting. Uh, tell me a little bit about the resin. So I'm um, I'm curious about you know toxicity, ease of workmanship, those type of things. Um, I mean, do you need some special equipment? You don't obviously. You don't have to be in a hazmat suit to do this. No. Well, okay. <laughs> but, so yeah, I see where you're going. So yeah, you know, you need to protect yourself. Uh, yeah. Wear gloves. Uh, you don't. Mm-hmm. You don't want. You don't want that stuff on your getting on your skin. You don't want mm-hmm. skin contact with it. Um, I, I would rate most, like epo- most of the epoxies and polyurethanes. Um, I mean, it's kind of the same idea as like finishes, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you don't want to drink it. <laughs> you don't really right. want it on your hands that much. Um, that kind of thing. Uh, I would recommend, you know, just like every can of any chemical says, you know, you you want to work in a well-ventilated area, mm-hmm. um, you know, keep the air moving and, and recycling. The thing is, though, some resins are highly toxic. Um, so, you know, regardless of what what I say, you know, make, make sure you, if you're if you're getting into resin casting, read the the product uh, safety stuff. You know, there, there's always going to be safety stuff in the, the instructions mm-hmm. for okay. whatever type. If you're not familiar with it. Or you just don't know for sure, you know, read the safety stuff and it'll tell you, you know, how to protect yourself. Um, One of the ones, uh, polyester resin, which is a lot of people call it fiberglass resin. Okay. That stuff is toxic. Um, That, that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it causes brain damage with enough exposure. Oh, good. Ooh. So you don't want to be huffing that. And it is absolutely horrid smelling anyway. So you don't really want to smell it. And that's one mm-hmm. that I do not use. Um, that was actually the first resin I ever tried. And, uh, you know, and I'm reading the, the safety instructions. They're like, oh, you know, use in a well-ventilated area. And I'm like, right. Just yeah. like, you know, like we always do with wipe on poly, well-ventilated. Yeah. You know, and can so con- Yeah, it can cause cancer in every right. state right. of the union, not just California. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm thinking, I'm in my shop, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, I got really tall ceilings. Like, like, you know, it's a pretty big shop here. It's 20-foot ceilings, and I'm thinking, oh, it's well-ventilated in here. Well, one thing that I didn't really think about is my actual, my personal shop area is, like, we put plastic sheeting up around the two walls of it. So it's not really that well ventilated. It's not like I'm recycling air, you know, 
at high rates. Right. So I start, you know, I crack this stuff. It smells horrid. I mean, it's like, like lacquer thinner, you know, that just toxic mm-hmm. smelling nasty. And so I'm like, Ugh, you know, that that's not fun. Well, like five minutes into it, I'm like mixing it up and, you know, standing there. I'm dizzy. Oh. Like I'm dizzy and I'm like, what is going on? And, and then I realized I looked into it more and it is, that stuff is really toxic. So yeah, I, I would well ventilated area. Um, if you can't get your aerial ventilated respirator, you know, mm-hmm. um, put a fan on just, you don't want to be huffing that stuff. That stuff's bad for you. And there are some other resins that I've come across that have certain chemicals in them that are, are more toxic than others. Okay. And then there's also some that kind of say that they're, you know, I don't know, good for the environment too. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know how, how much better some of those are. It might just be marketing, but for the most part, you know, common sense is, is yeah. really what you need. Uh, but there are a couple of them. And that's why I always say, you know, make sure if you're not sure, uh, you know, you're mm. not sure what product you're using, you haven't used it before. Um, just read the safety instructions and, and follow them for the most part. Uh, yeah. And I'm sure that also goes to when you're on the lathe with these resins and especially sanding, make sure you're fully protected. Yeah. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't matter what you're saying. You don't, you don't want to be breathing dust no matter what. Exactly. So, yeah. Yep. Uh, what was the other, you said so I, safety and then what was the other thing? I, I like workability, work time, things of that nature. So, you know, when you're, when you're doing this, I, I assume these are long set resins. You're not, you know, working against the clock. No, nope. That's not what I yeah. use. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, it really depends. Um, okay. You know, d- depending on the manufacturer and, and even per manufacturer, they usually have a bunch of different formulas. Uh, mm-hmm. So it can depend. I mean, I, I actually use one of the resins that I use a lot is it sets up in two minutes. Ooh. You have two minutes. Okay. You better be done, you know. <laughs> um, and that's actually the majority of the, the color swirl team color blanks that I make. That's what I use. Do you um, do the short one so that the colors can't completely mix together and you end up with the swirls so it sets before it blends um no that's that's not why i use it actually that the reason i use that one is it's it if you just mix the part a and the part b it turns opaque totally opaque white Mm -hmm. and when i that was actually the first it's it's alumalite white they call it um that was the first one that i ever started using because (laughs) because i'm lazy basically i i don't like painting tubes Okay. <laughs> so if if you're for for people that aren't into pen turning, if, if when you when you make a pen, you're going to drill out the center and you're going to glue in a brass tube in the middle. Mm. And if you have a really transparent blank, then you see this you know scuff marked brass tube in there, and it's really ugly. So I found out that there is a resin that was when it cured, it was totally opaque, like 100% opaque. And I'm like, oh, never going to paint a tube again. It's <laughs> kind of what I thought of, you know. Yeah. The only downside with that one is, like I said, two minutes and you're, and you're done. Um, but so I use that one. And then I also use a slower kind of, I would call it a medium setting resin. That's 12 minutes. Okay. And then sometimes I use, uh, well, actually uh, a couple of weeks ago on the live stream, we did one where you had three hours <laughs> and it had to yeah. stay in the pressure pot for 72 hours, you know? So it really just depends there. The good thing is there's a formula for, 
whatever type of work you want to do. And some, some of them like, like that one that was a three hour working time and 72 hour demold time. Um, it was an epoxy that you could pour in very large quantities. Okay. So that, you know, there's a lot of characteristics that you can kind of go into and, and, and figure out. Most people use either kind of a slower setting, like an hour, you have about 30 minutes to an hour. And that's like most of your epoxies, um, polyester resin is kind of a, lo- a longer open time. Mm-hmm. And then usually there are some kind of faster setting epoxies, but alumilite is the one that's on the faster side. The, they have a clear version that is, you either have five minutes or 12 minutes. And then they have that with their white, which is two minutes. And I got to be honest, I actually don't even recommend most people mess with that because it's (laughs) you got to you got to move. It's not it's not so difficult that it's impossible. It's just what you have to do is you have to be ready. Like you have to prepare. Everything has to be ready. There's no you can't be like, oh, I forgot to, you know, do this part like you're done. You know, Mm -hmm. you may as well just toss it in the trash if you figure out that you need to go get the dye bottle open. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah. preparing you know if you prepare and everything's set out and you've you've planned accordingly it's not really that hard i mean but uh, you know i just here's the other problem i guess with that so we were talking about the dyes and there's also the powders for uh if you want to color resin mm-hmm. the other reason i don't even recommend people use that that white the opaque one is because it you can't use you can't get pearly colors with that one um, oh, it's totally yeah. opaque and those pearl mm-hmm. colors rely on light transmission. And so that if there's no sense. light transmission, it doesn't do anything. So that's the reason why I'm kind of like, most people are going to hate working with this being so mm-hmm. slow and it's very limiting. You can only use dyes and you're going to get solid colors. That's it. And, um, with the clear though, I mean, you can make opaque blanks. It's possible to, with certain dyes, make it opaque totally mm-hmm. um, or add enough of the the pearl pigment but you can get, do pearls you can do totally clear stuff you have a lot a little bit more working time so that's why i usually just kind of recommend people go with the clear one mm-hmm. makes sense yeah yeah now before we get into some fun questions uh one thing on equipment i, I want to ask all about is what you know you mentioned doing the pressure pots so what type of compressors are y'all using i assume y'all are using some uh uh two-stage compressors or something like that or maybe i'm wrong so the one that i'm using um it's nothing fancy actually it's it's just like a normal electric compressor i think mine is a five gallon um okay the only special thing about it is because i originally had my shop in the basement of the house i'm living in and so i originally got there's a company called um I think Cal- California Air Tools. California Air, yeah. yeah I got to exactly. buy one of those because, yeah, my yeah. wife. Yeah, I, I'm sure you're going where I'm going. Is my wife just kills me every time the compressor kicks off in the middle of the night? Yeah. So <laughs> I not only got that, but I also built like a sound insulation box yeah. for that specific compressor, mm-hmm. and you really can't hear it at all, um, especially now that I've transferred out to like a, a two car garage where it's a lot a lot more room. You really can't hear it. Um, I, I think Zach has a lot more of a industrial one than me, but I could be wrong. Yeah, I, I share a shop with my dad. He's a machinist, and so he mm-hmm. had a, like an eighty-gallon 
whatever you know huge compressor yeah. that we run an entire four thousand square foot shop with. So I'm kind of not in the the typical <laughs> uh, you know kind of thing. So I basically just kind of plumbed lines into my area and just kind of stole off his. Now I do have a fifteen gallon. Uh, back back when I was just doing woodworking and uh, and lived in Vegas, I had a fifteen gallon compressor. There's nothing special, yeah. you know, uh, but it would have worked fine I, for resin casting. I think the main thing is I I would recommend getting no smaller than a two and a half gallon, mm -hmm. um, just because most of the pressure pots are two and a half gallons, and so it what ends up happening is in some cases, depending on how strong the compressor motor is. And how you know the, the the volume of air that it can hold in the tank. When you're filling the tank, it's it's if it's too small, it's just going to be running constantly gotcha. to get it filled up. Whereas if you have at least a two and a half, like the pancake compressors, they work fine. Um, if it's you know the tank's filled up, then when you're filling the pot up, most of it's just going to fill right away, and then it, maybe it'll kick on right at the end, you know. But otherwise, your your compressor is just going to be running all the time. I think I think the optimal size is those that that California Air Tools five mm -hmm. gallon. That is a I mean it's a pretty good price. Uh, last time I looked, I think it was on Amazon. It was like a hundred and fifty, hundred and eighty. Oh, wow. Yeah, something. I mean it's yeah, yeah and it's yeah. like super quiet, um, like like way quieter, uh, oilless, and like mm -hmm. five gallons is kind of a sweet spot. I think. I mean, you could use that for anything I can think of in a, in a typical shop, mm -hmm. you know, you can run, you know, air tools with it. You can fill up a tire, you know, it, it'll work perfect for resin casting. So it's, it's a pretty good size. And I, it's just one of those things that if you're going to buy a compressor, like a lot of people ask me, what compressor should I get? Or what's the minimum? And I'm kind of like, okay, well the minimum is, is X, but if you're going to spend the money on a compressor, and you actually, you know, you're turning, you, you have a workshop, you actually want to do stuff. I would get a, get one that can do more than one thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's not just a Brad nailer gun, you know, do Let's something say, that'll run something. Yeah. My pancake that I got as a combo with a nail gun. I mean, yeah. while it could work, <laughs> yeah. not, not, not what you want to dedicate to work. No. Yeah. Well, like I said, a pancake will work. It's, it, it's not, if, if you already have one, now that's a different story. But if you're yeah. like starting up a shop, why are you going to buy it doesn't really work that well compressor right. <laughs> compared? Mm -hmm. And really, we're talking price wise, there's not much difference. Now, the only issue is, do you have enough space for a five gallon compared to a, a smaller compact? You know, that's where I would maybe say if you don't have the room, then, you know, go for something kind of smaller. But if you got the room and you're starting up a shop, go get the bigger one, you know. You'll, you'll, it, it'll be well worth your money down the road when you start finding other uses for your compressor. Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, let me ask you a fun question. So what's the weirdest casting y'all done? Hmm. Zach's got some good ones. Well, you know what, actually I'm looking on my, I'm looking on my, uh, my little shop table. Actually, it's a Wood Whisperer special, the the, the assembly table, my, my mm -hmm. version of it. But I'm looking on that table, and I have two stalks of Brussels sprouts sitting there. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, when you're casting yeah. a Brussels sprout, do you have to um, – do you have hey, to – needs... Go ahead. Well, 
Well, I, I'm not doing the, the actual Brussels sprouts themselves. It was actually somebody contacted me on Instagram and said, hey, I got Brussels sprout stocks. Do you want me to send them to you? They're fully dried out. And I'm like, OK, you know, and so I actually finished up that that project. We did it actually a while ago. But at Trader Joe's, they actually I had never seen Brussels sprouts stocks before or, you know, I don't know, just mm-hmm. never thought about it. I don't like Brussels sprouts either. That's the funny thing. And so they had these things, and I'm like, oh, I'm totally buying those for the thumbnail for my video. (laughs) (laughs) Put my bowl in the middle. So I made a bowl out of uh, these stocks, and I actually dye-stabilized them, some, like, red and green. That was going to be my question, is do you have to stabilize them before you cast them? Yeah, well, you definitely, like, pretty much any material, you really need to dry it out completely. And And we're not, like, in the woodworking world, people say, oh, is it dry? And that means, like, equalized to your shop mm-hmm. you know humidity levels the ambient humidity when we're talking dried we're talking zero percent moisture content and throw your your moisture meter out the window that they don't work for this you're going for no moisture in them and so you know any kind of material you really want it to be totally dry the the thing is some some resins alumilite reacts it'll it'll react with moisture so that's number one it'll foam up and and ruin your your casting or the other problem with it is if there's moisture in there these resins uh they're thermoplastics they heat up when they cure Mm -hmm. and so what ends up happening is that that moisture in there converts to a gaseous material and so you got air bubbles coming out of Mm -hmm. your your wood or whatever and so you really need to just dry it out completely before you cast it and so that's one of the reasons why i stabilize a lot of the stuff is just i don't want to have to you can put it in the oven, dry it out for a, you know a day or two, but you can't just take it out of the oven and just leave it sitting on your table. It'll start sucking moisture up right. like instantly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for me, it just makes more sense if I'm going to dry it out. I may as well just stabilize it. You know okay. that way, I can pretty much pull it out whenever I want. Now, even you got to kind of watch out. I, I learned a lesson uh, in Texas at the the wood turning symposium. There, we I was doing demos there cast a pine cone and it cracked <laughs> and i'm looking at it like this shouldn't have happened you know i don't know what happened and everyone around there was like oh that's just moisture and i'm like oh i'm from nevada we don't have that <laughs> so you know like this and the pine cone was stabilized you know that's why i was like i didn't i didn't think about it so you also kind of have to watch out for surface moisture i think is what happened um typically i'm gonna just toss after after that lesson i kind of toss things in the in the oven just just to knock off any any surface moisture but in general if you stabilize it uh like i I stabilize a bunch of pine cones and and a bunch of that sagebrush at once Mm -hmm. and then i just toss it in a a ziploc bag and that's good enough in my climate if you're you know running 80 percent humidity uh you may have to do the you know pop it in the oven thing for a little bit if it's stabilized and just kind of knock that surface moisture off Okay, um, but yeah, yeah. So you got to full, fully dry out anything. Now I actually have tried casting a Brussels sprout, and what I tried to do to dry it out was use silica gel, like just fill a, a cup yeah. of it and, and cover it. And I, I don't know. I don't know if it's me or maybe I'm just like too impatient with this stuff. I've never gotten that to work too well personally. Did you add I butter used- and bacon? Yeah, <laughs> I think that might help. But yeah, so I've never really been able to get something like that completely dried out without it like rotting, basically. Yeah. Um, 
but you know, like the stocks worked out pretty good. Hmm. So how about you, Casey? What have you done? Uh, so definitely not as, as fun of stuff as you. Um, but still some, some interesting things I would say. Uh, I've, so I've done pine cones. I've done sweet gum pods, like those seed pods that, um, like those little spiky balls that you'll mm-hmm. see on the ground. Okay. Um, I regularly do um, colored pencils and gold leaf, silver leaf, and copper leaf, um, which look pretty cool. Um, what else? I've done flowers, like in a like dried flowers. Um, oh yeah, that makes and then cool. like many like different versions of pine cones. Like I've done many. I think they might be redwood. I'm not sure, but they're like really really small. Um, just a, just a bunch of random stuff like that. Um, but I don't think Zach Zach kind of like hit the the tip of the iceberg because I know he's done like dog food. Um, what's up? What's <laughs> like? Just start. You could just start throwing them out there, Zach. Like I know you've done pasta. Uh, like we did uh, mushrooms. Um, for for his like dye stabilized mushrooms. Actually, one of the, one of the fun ones that we did was Gretchen and I went up to I think it was I think it was for kind of our anniversary. We went up to Tahoe and stayed at Harrah's up there. Mm-hmm. And we went down to the fun center and we were playing all the games and all that stuff. And then we, we got like little mini spiders, like the little plastic spiders, <laughs> cast those for Halloween. That was fun. <laughs> um, I don't know. Lots of, lots of different things. Oh, actually one of my favorites I think is, uh, Gretchen got me Pez dispensers that were star Wars themed. So there was a little BB eight, a chewy, a hand <laughs> solo and, uh, um, uh, Ray, I think. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so there's these four things, and I'm like, oh man, I am totally the first sphere, you know, so like a, a round orb. Uh, that's <laughs> that, those are becoming hot, you know, everybody yeah. in, the, in the turning world likes to do those. And yeah. they like, like the hybrid, you know, wooden, wooden resin. Mm-hmm. I'm like, when I do my first sphere, I'm casting a piece of burl and I'm gluing BB 8 into the middle of this sphere. And so that's, <laughs> I keep that in my shop. I have a little, little orange sphere with a little BB-8 Pez dispenser top thing in there. So it's pretty fun. You know, that's the fun thing about casting is, you know, you can do anything. You can put anything in it. You can shape it into any shape you want, add all these different colors or make it transparent. And it's fun seeing what, what comes of this stuff, you know? Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it's amazing the variety of things you can cast to the turn. So, well, with that, with that, maybe we should move on to our fortnightly beer choices. Here, 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 right. here. <laughs> so, I guess I'll start us out because uh, Diami's going to give me a hard time. <laughs> I'm breaking out into uh, one of my favorite um, uh, Texas-based brewers, uh, Carbach. Now, and uh Kyle, I'm yeah. sorry. I, I'm gonna stop you even right now. Before you get into the name and style of beer, could yeah. what's the date? Um <laughs> what is it? November seventh or eighth, somewhere. It's November seventh as we record this. Yeah. So just let's just I'm just you know, I just I was curious. So it's it's November seventh. I'm sorry. No, no yeah. go on. <laughs> so this is a seasonal beer. Um, and it's uh, you'll shoot your eye out. You'll spelling Y U L E. So it is a Christmas ale, and uh, it's ab- absolutely a fantastic Christmas ale. Mm-hmm. So you know they're out here, and yes, we can still get some Oktoberfest too here in Texas. But it's a 
red ale and it's uh, actually brewed with orange pill and oh, it's absolutely yeah it's absolutely fantastic um it's relatively uh middling alcohol content 5.6 and it's brewed out of about four different types of uh malts and uh three different types of um uh well one different type of hops should i say but um you know they say recommended pairings i'm sitting here looking at the website wild game hearty stew stews lamb chops spice cake family and my favorite <laughs> recommended pairing christmas cookies mm-hmm. <laughs> now uh, all beer but, goes 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 well but, with yeah but it's absolutely fantastic it's got a great can with uh you know from uh the the uh the movie it's got the uh, leg lamp on the on the front of the can so it's absolutely fantastic and 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 actually it's a great beer it's a great beer so that that's excellent i'll enjoy it next season exactly um, <laughs> i have a beer that's actually seasonal um Oh, another Christmas ale. Yeah, uh, not quite. Um, you've been uh, enjoying Oktoberfest all summer long, and uh, I've complained that not only is, is it like 400 degrees in Texas, but even in New York, it has been unseasonably warm. And uh, while it's still a little warmer than it should be in November, there is a chill to the air. So it is finally Oktoberfest season as far as I'm concerned because it's really about the temperature. Um, so I've been enjoying the Warsteiner Oktoberfest, which is from uh, Warsteiner Brewery in Germany. And it is a, uh, it's a very light – it's light for an Oktoberfest. It is not a light beer by any stretch of the imagination. But it is light and smooth for an Oktoberfest. Um, and they're very, uh, very drinkable. It's a, it's a delightful beer. Nice. Very nice. So, uh, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I, I took a, a page out of Diami's book this week in getting something that probably no one else can get with his all his six-point, <laughs> uh, they release one a day kind of things. Um, but I did just stumble upon it. So I, I went to the, the, just to the, the shop today, and I stumbled upon this can with a, you know, a kind of a paper, see if I can rub it. It's a, you know, like a paper label on it. Uh, but it's this uh, brewery called Nowhere in Particular, and it's batch number 24. Uh, it's an Imperial Goes, a Goza, however you say it. But it says distinctly, this beer you're holding is a beer that will never be made again. It is the only of its kind, and it represents the ever-changing lineage meant to blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, very good. Uh, I didn't even see where these things are made. Uh, I don't know. No, I have no idea where they're from, but uh, it, it was it, it was probably a nice... somewhere in Ohio. Yeah, somewhere close so. to you, though. No? I don't know. I don't know. I'm gonna look it up. I'll 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 chime in in a little bit. But um, um, it uh, it was a, a very nice little uh, you know, easy drinking goza. And I know, yeah, I mean, you know, I like the sours. So yeah. well, maybe I'm... for easy for me and not for all. But... Let me ask about a goza. What makes it an imperial goza? Ah, uh, you know what? In its, I don't know. <laughs> um, it's regal. It it comes in. No, it comes in at seven percent. Usually, the gozas are a really kind of low ABV. Yeah, they're, very they're pretty sessionable. Usually. Yeah, um, and it wasn't heavy by any means. It's it's actually fairly light. It, um, what does it said? Uh, 
ale brewed with pink Himalayan salt and coriander. Oh, that's the best salt. It is. Oh, yeah. It's got health benefits, as far as I can tell. So uh, that's why I use it, drink it. <coughs> um, <laughs> it's better in liquid form. There you go. There you yeah. go. Yeah. There you go. Go ahead. Try to find some. We'll work on it. We'll work on it. So uh, Zach and Casey, uh, we do have the uh, the fortnightly uh, uh, beer recommendations, but uh, you can recommend anything from beer to other spirits to uh, your favorite spring water. So Zach, anything to recommend? Well, this is going to be a little bit little bit different, but so some of you guys might be familiar with Kona Brewing Company. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm not going to recommend anything specific from them because in the States, you know, we get whatever they, they sell and it's just kind of a, you know, more, more of the but small, if you're on small the mass produced. It's good. But, but yeah. what I'm going to recommend is if you're ever on the big Island, go to the Kona brewing company. And I can't remember what day it was, but one of the days the brewmaster there just like plays with brews <laughs> or whatever, like with recipes mm-hmm. and they have random weird, whatever on tap that you can do at the tasting. Oh. It was the coolest thing ever. The last time we were there, we went and had something that literally it was a beer and it tasted like caramel. Oh, it was, man. it was just crazy. It was, it was just an amazing kind of like fun thing. And it reminded me of what I do in my shop. <laughs> I just play with resin and come up with new things. And I was like, I can get on board with this. So if you're ever in, in Hawaii, hit, hit the big Island up and go to the Kona brewing company, get a get like, you don't have to have a tour or anything. Just go in there and, and try and I, I want to say it was like Thursdays they have. And I forget what they call it. It's some kind mm. of a event going on there, but they're, they have stuff that you'll never get anywhere else in the, in the world, basically kind of thing. And probably never again. Yeah, I found that. Like, I've uh, had Kona beer here in Texas. You can get it, and and it's fine. But uh, I was in Maui uh, last year, and you know, we had some stuff on draft, and it was a totally different beer. Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, I've had yeah. Six Points in Brooklyn, and it's very different than the Six Points I got in Long Island. Yeah. Really? What? No. Was it the? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, He's just playing with. <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah. Casey, anything for yeah. you? Yeah. So <clears throat> I well, first let me preface this with a question for you guys because I've been pretty impressed with the growth of this brewery. Have you you guys heard of Lagunitas? Oh yes, absolutely. Okay. Hadn't so made that, it to Texas yet? I don't think. Uh, so I actually went out of the country over the summer, and I even saw it a couple places over in Europe, which blew wow. my mind. So well, I mentioned at the beginning of the show that I'm from Sonoma County, and one of the small towns in Sonoma County is called Petaluma. And that's mm-hmm. where Lagunitas Brewery uh, was founded and started. And I believe it was literally within the last 10 years. Like, they're not that wow. old. Mm-hmm. And re- within the last few years, like maybe five or less, um, or maybe even sooner than that, they were bought by um, some bigger company, and I now they have a yeah okay. Oh. And now they have a distribution center in Chicago, and mm. so now they're all over the states. But um, I'd highly recommend it. I'm sure that it it might taste a, a little more different on on tap, but just the typical Lagunitas IPA is really good. And also, um, they have a little something something IPA as well, mm-hmm. or maybe it's an ale. But um, pretty much any any of the stuff from there is pretty good, Those- and it's been. 
Yeah, I think I'm totally wrong. I think I have seen that. A little something, something IPA. I think I have mm-hmm. seen that. Yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure they have nationwide distribution. Lagavies is a, is mm-hmm. a good brewery. They're very similar mm-hmm. to um, to Goose Island in that they were a really good microbrew who got bought by a much bigger company and has mm-hmm. gotten really big distribution while still basically remaining true to their original brewery ideals and you know types of beers and flavors and whatnot. Yeah, that, that's similar to the brand I was talking about, Carbach. Uh, yeah, they were that kind of brewery, and they got bought out by whoever the big one is um, that owns everybody. InBev? Uh, yeah, InBev, exactly. So they got bought out by them. But, yeah, they've seen true to their roots. They're still brewing everything here in Houston, as far as I know. So, yeah. But yeah, a much I, bigger facility. Yeah. Do you, do any of you guys get Rheingeist? I've heard of it. Okay, sure and they're they're based in Cincinnati, but in, in at least in Ohio, they've got wide distribution, and it's one of those things. It's kind of like Lagunitas. If it's blown up in the last decade or so, like they, as far as I can tell, they started in like 2012, and now it's on like every grocery store shelf. It's on. It's they absolutely exploded in distribution and are well regarded at the same time. Are they bought by a bigger company or are they still independent? No, they are still independent. And they've managed to survive that growth because I've talked to a lot of uh, smaller breweries uh, here on the island and up in New England and most of them have scaled back their distribution because they found it was impossible to maintain um I don't honestly. I'm not even sure what it was impossible to maintain, but I've heard more than one say that they have retracted their distribution because um, they just can't keep up with distributing in these wide, wide areas. So that's impressive that an independently owned brewery was able to do that. Yes, yeah, they have an interesting tale, and that I mean, it's totally side tangent. But um, a buddy of mine visited their their brewery in South Cincinnati. You remember where, when we were down there and we had that meet up in the uh, Christian Morheim. Yes. So Cincinnati has this rich uh, history of brewing back from the 1800s, all the Germans that came to town and they all had like multiple different breweries. Rheingeist moved into a building that was used since 1895 for brewing. And now it's, it's got something in the couple hundred thousand barrel capacity of production. Wow. Um, yeah, it's huge. Uh, to the point where the Cincinnati Museum of History had a dinosaur exhibit loaned to their showroom in this structure that they have. Like, you could fit a stegosaurus skeleton in their brewery in the open space. Like, like you do. <laughs> like you do. Yeah. It's, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, and, and I just found it. it. They started in 2013, and they are growing and and, and I, I get that I'm in the same state as them so it's not that maybe it's not the biggest distribution but it's a it's a ridiculous uh success story and again yeah having having not sold out or joined in with some other big distributor or or existing stronghold that's fantastic yeah it's pretty cool next time we're in Cincinnati we'll have to check them out let's go yeah. oh by the way speaking of that um I, I'm assuming that Woodwork in America, as much as I hate to say it, is at least for now dead. Let's call it furlough. Uh, furlough, okay. okay. Um, okay. Furloughed, yeah, I like that. I have seen that um, in addition to the fine woodworking hands-on classes in Tampa, in Tampa, 
in February. Um, Fine Woodworking Live, the they haven't set anything up in terms of uh, tickets or sales or whatnot, but they have announced dates that it'll be April 26th through the 28th of 2019 back in Massachusetts. So mm-hmm. um, you you need to drag yourself out of Ohio and come to Massachusetts, Sean. <laughs> I know, I know. That's right. Uh, you know, I always I always have something come up. Um, actually, it, like, what are the dates? April 26th to 28th. Your brother's already married. You can't do that Hold again. Hold on. Hold on. Checking Glass City Marathon... 2019, because I already registered. Um, ooh, April 28th. Is that the same weekend? It is the same weekend. The 26th and the 28th includes the 28th. I'm out. <laughs> Man. So you could run to Massachusetts. <laughs> That's a hell of a lot longer than 26 miles. <laughs> a lot longer. <sighs> but I digress. Yeah, yeah, I brought us off on a tangent. But anyway, for anyone who wants to go, <laughs> Find Wood Working Live is going to be a blast. I'll be there. As will I. And I would encourage you guys to go because you'll probably be the only ones doing resin casting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You never know these days. You never know. Yeah, you really, you really don't. You really don't. But I will say that it is crossover. certainly the spiritual successor of WRA. And. Um, they seem to have got finally gotten the pattern right after a couple of years of of experimenting with different uh, different programs. So it's a it's a good show. But anyway, before we anyway. finally wrap this whole thing up, gentlemen, um, we've barely touched on the fact that you guys do a podcast of your own. Woo! Um, <laughs> Started it up. Yeah. Well, and it is uh, the Resincast. And the other than to say that it really goes into um, much greater detail about the subject we've talked to you about in terms of how to do resin casting and methods of resin casting and everything anyone could ever want to know about resin casting. Um, <laughs> anything else you want to share about the podcast? Uh, well, mainly, you know, it's it's obviously about resin casting. We, we touch on stabilizing and then also turning subjects. And then just kind of, uh, we're also trying to kind of talk about just being, you know, I guess makers, let's say, you know, air quotes, <laughs> makers, you know, people working in shops doing, doing whatever. Uh, we have, we have some, we, we try to blend all, all four of those kind of topics. Okay. Um, just, you know, d- different types of things, but we're both kind of doing, you know, resin casting. We both kind of do the same types of things. So, and we love talking about resin, obviously. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I hope everybody checks it out. It's it's pretty fun, uh, especially if you're thinking about getting into resin casting. I think it would be helpful uh, just oh. kind of hearing, you know, it's one of those, you know, audio audio things are great to pop in when you're driving or running or doing whatever. And it it, it allows you that long form to kind of just, you know, touch on subjects and kind of really go around and, and, and explain them. Uh, right. I think. You know, and just and, and explore things. I think is also another good, good, good description of, of what you can do. And it's just something. Uh, I hope that our show basically kind of just fills in some of the gaps that may be missing uh, in other, you know, video forms and all that kind of stuff. And hopefully, it'll kind of inspire people to get out there and try it out too. Uh, so those are the two big things I think that we're we're focused on with it. I, I think it's wonderful having listened to uh, I think everything but the newest episode at this point. Um, 
you guys are doing a nice job. Oh, thanks. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Fun. I think, <laughs> yeah, to Diami's De- point, I think we covered um, so some of the questions that I think y'all y'all have uh, completely answered in some of your uh, previous episodes on the cast, but just to give our, our listeners a flavor for it. And, uh, yeah, if you're definitely even remotely interested, I encourage you all to uh, listen to their podcast. Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for having us on, guys. It was really cool. No, no yeah, problem. Yeah, thank so you. Where can, uh, where can our listeners find the podcast and more about the two of you? Sure. So uh, you can find our podcast pretty much anywhere, specifically iTunes. It's probably one of the easiest for people. Uh, you can find it on SoundCloud. And then you can also find it on our website, theresincast.com. Um, my info, uh, you, <clears throat> the main kind of brand name for my shop and everything is Wine Country Woodworks. Um, probably makes sense after the kind of stories I've told you guys. <laughs> um, yep. So you can search that on, on Google. You'll find my website. Uh, you'll probably also find my YouTube videos and hopefully my Instagram as well. Um, that's kind of my, my info. Yeah, and I'm Envy Woodworks, or Zach Higgins. You can find my YouTube channel, envywoodworks.com. If anybody needs any turning blanks, I sell them. Uh, <laughs> time for Christmas, I hear. Just in time for Christmas projects. But uh, yeah, so envywoodworks.com. And then uh, I'm pretty active on Facebook and Instagram, too, for social media. A little bit here and there on Twitter. Short. Yeah, me. <laughs> I <laughs> uh, well, and so we can just go on to us then. I, I I'm Sean Wisniewski. You can find me uh, at Sean W78 pretty much on any social media, uh, or my actual name on Facebook. I'm there too. Sean Wisniewski, yeah. your actual name? Yeah, that's actual my actual one? name. That's my what's real the, name. What's your fake name? Uh, I go by many names. Uh, <laughs> aliases. All right, I, I'm Diami Plotky of the Penultimate Woodshop. Uh, and uh, Modern Woodworkers Association. You can find me on Twitter at Diami Plotky or Instagram at Penultimate Woodshop. And um, I'm Kyle Barton. I'm on the only social media platform that matters. That's Instagram, and you can find me at Barton.Kyle. Can you hear my eyes roll, Kyle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll put that in there for you. Diami <laughs> waving a G-plus flag. <laughs> <laughs> that ship my for to sail, and I am no longer there, but I still don't appreciate why everyone seems to be fleeing Twitter. <laughs> I Who knows? It's it's what the kids are doing these days, I guess. <laughs> Those damn kids. <laughs> well, with that, that just about wraps up our show for now. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play Music. That's still a thing. Uh, just search for the Modern Woodworkers Association. Then you'll never miss one of our exciting episodes, like our last epic 200th episode. If you missed that one, you're missing a lot. Indeed. Anyway. And if you're a new listener, <laughs> please do skip it because it really ha- will have nothing to interest you. But if you've if you've come the slog the whole episodes uh, with us, um, hopefully you enjoyed it because it was just a, a, a nice conversation among friends. Um, and let me touch on the fact that the last episode was episode 200, and this is episode 218. And um, while my degree is in English, I do know how to count. <laughs> and what we decided to do was actually number every episode because um, we were not necessarily the most professional or regular podcasters in the beginning. And we have... Qu- a number of episodes, uh, 17 in fact, that are not numbered. And they were, you know, this special and afternoon special and uh, lots of other things. So what we did is with 200 
kind of uh, readjusted the numbering system. So this is actually the 218th episode. Uh, so that is why we took the jump from 200 to 218. And at this point going on, or going forward, every episode will simply be the next number. So uh, in, look forward to episode 219 next week. Um, but thank you for listening to the Modern Woodworkers Association. If you like the show, you can visit modernwoodworkersassociation.com. You can follow the MWA on Twitter at MWA underscore national, on Instagram at MWA underscore podcast, or you can like the MWA on Facebook. And the best thing you can do is tell a friend and um, get them to subscribe because if they like woodworking, hopefully they'll enjoy us just chatting away about resin for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so with that, go out in your shop, build yourself a stove, put a pressure pot in it, and power carve something. So did everyone get the uh, repeat of literally? Yeah. 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 Okay, we're sending that to Shannon. Because I literally, 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 liter